Is Charlie Manson crazy? Whatever that means, sure, he's crazy, he's mad as a hatter. What difference does it make? You know, a long time ago, being crazy meant something. Nowadays, everybody's crazy. So, I mean, you know, like, you know, synonymous. I mean, it's an irony, man. It's a pair of ducks. I mean, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. You got your rings. You think I don't understand your blue rings and your yellow best skin? You think you're anything? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then behind that, then, you know, there's a... Give up your world. Come on, you can't be I'm your kind Oh, your kind I can see Walk on, walk on <laughs> The Podbelly Pig? Oh, it's the Podbelly Pig? Hey, what's up, Kevin? Kevin Bacon, baby <laughs> I think that pig just said consciousness and <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. That pig's a part of MK Ultra right yeah, there. So. Yeah. All right, so I'm about to hit uh, record right now. Boom, bam. Welcome to episode 117, part two of Charles Willis Manson. Ma- yeah, <laughs> dude. Part one, we had Keith Silvis here, and this time we got Maddie returning. By popular demand. Oh, thanks for having me. I back. know another handsome guy. I was saying that. I was like, man, I yeah. thought I was having a handsome day, and then you walk into my house. <laughs> thank you. Uh, handsome quota. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's like the Backstreet Boys. You know, I'm just the fat <laughs> one in the back or whatever, and then this is like the Latino yeah. one. I'm the AJ, but, but <laughs> of the podcasting world. <laughs> then we have like the heartthrob over here. Oh, so thank yeah. you. the weekly the, heartthrob. The, the Nick Carter. <laughs> is Nick Carter the uh, Arthur? I don't know. I don't. I guess I, I was know. more of a Howie fan myself, but I mean, which one's Howie? I thought I thought Andrew Luck was handsome, so I mean, yeah. that's my taste in men. That's weird. For you, so I don't know. But anyways, Maddie is handsome. We can all 100 percent agree with that. <laughs> I agree. So welcome back, Maddie, for part <laughs> two of Charles Manson. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. <laughs> no I'm problem, excited. man. One of my favorite guests. Did we discuss uh, our dislike for Neil deGrasse Tyson last time? I can't remember Wait, if that was just us two like talking about. No, I don't, yeah. man. He, he seems pretty arrogant. Yeah. Do you know what's yeah. funny about that though? Like before we get into the topic, I remember you said that like a year or two ago, and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with him, man. He's, he's charismatic. He's smart. Like he knows his shit. And then the last time he was on Rogan, which was like a week or two ago, I was listening to it and I was like, man, he's kind of a douchebag. Yeah. Is that the? There's one where he talks about like how he doesn't wear. He doesn't have a cell phone cases on his phone he's uh, like i like to feel the textures of my phone and I, I don't i don't think it should be hindered by having a plastic cover on it i want to feel the design the aerodynamic i'm like what the hell are you talking about man it's a fucking phone case like <laughs> yeah all the designs on the out. screen homie yeah yeah it's like dude it's a piece of plastic like stop putting so much value into it <laughs> i don't know that's that esoteric fucking bullshit that some people have i don't know like you know, it, i spent i don't got i'm not a fucking cars, real famous scientist so i gotta put a goddamn case yeah, on my cars look cooler when you take the bumpers off but trust me you want to drive with a bumper on your car what car looks better without the bumper have you seen some cars without bumpers like what a toyota tercel you can you can you can dude there's some fucking like modded out cars that would never see the maybe a wrangler or maybe like an old school like crash car or whatever but i don't know i don't know about that dude trust me on that okay you're the car guy i'll trust you but anyways speaking of cars without bumpers part two of the charles manson saga 
awkward silence okay oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so anyways last week just to recap uh what we did part one was basically us exploring uh the background of how charles manson came to be because every serial killer every every crime person in the history that ever was had kind of a fucked up childhood art and i were talking before the show that you know richard ramirez has a really traumatic childhood and you know so did charles manson you know he basically was born without a name he had two fathers before he was actually born uh when he was born his mom tried to sell him for a pitcher of beer yeah he was in and out of penal institutions and boys homes he was getting raped he was raping people and when he finally got out he went back in and when he finally did get out and he would believe he was like 32 years old it was march 21st of 1967 did you guys ever wonder when they were telling the like the history of his childhood and stuff where they got all the info it's kind of weird like i know my dad will tell stories where because he's not from here so that he'll tell stories about when he was a kid about how they didn't they kind of just forged birth certificates and stuff and just made up info oh, wow. because mm-hmm. because it was like after the fact type stuff mm-hmm. and i know maybe here it's more uh documented and stuff like that but i feel like when he wasn't he born in the 30s yeah, yeah. 1932 I yeah say. i feel like how did they keep track of all that shit like when i was watching videos on it it was like and in the in the first grade he did this and he did that. <laughs> some of it was like damn how do they know so much about this kid he did get passed like, around a lot and i did ask that question myself because it seems like everybody has a different version of the truth so um spoiler alert like when we get into some of the facts quote-unquote of this i mean this is just me picking out what makes sense mm. to me for the narrative because you know you got the district attorney he wrote the um hel- the book helter skelter um you know even manson himself he has a book called manson in his own words he described a different scenario his mom actually i was watching a video on her she was actually describing like oh no he was he had a great childhood you know like he, he was he was the happiest child that ever could be and he had everything he ever wanted uh, yeah how how much are you gonna want like when half of your life is spent in prison so yeah. everybody's got a different version of the truth so this episode is pretty much going to be just me grabbing everything or us i should say it's not just me us grabbing um everything and seeing what makes sense what the the overlap is of the actual truth yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you art for that uh insertion But anyways, he was released March 21st of 1967. Um, However, at this point, he was begging to stay in jail. Yeah, that's kind of where we left off last time. He begged the the warden, don't let me out, man. I mean, and then like the point I was trying to make, I mean, he didn't have to worry about where his food came from. He didn't have to worry about where he was going to sleep. Um, he had plenty of sex. Cause that, that's pretty common, right? Institutional. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, people yeah. get accustomed to that. That becomes their home, which yeah. we'll see later he, on. He was getting raped from an early age, right? Because you said he had plenty of sex. That mm-hmm. was from an early age, yeah. right? Because yeah. he was so small. Uh-huh. He's five yeah. foot nothing. So yeah. it's like, yeah, so even as a grown adult, he's like the smallest guy in yeah, the room. Yeah, man. I know, like, that was another rabbit hole that I went down, too. It was just, like, there was a lot of, I mean, a lot of people don't, I guess, acknowledge it, but there was a lot of homosexual activity with Charles Manson as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it was the time period. Like, they were in majority of it, you know, where, where we're about to go. We're about to go to California and Berkeley, mm-hmm. where he spent some time. The summer of love, baby. And it is the summer of love, and this is, like, free love, and, you know, like, everyone's letting their freak flag fly. Drugs, yeah. Drugs and LSD and, you know. 
inhibitions were just being dropped right and left. So, yeah, he was released um, onto San Francisco on the promise that, you know, he would be living with a former cellmate of his, um, you know, that would provide him shelter. Because when you get released, they can't just release you irresponsibly out into the wild. You know, they give you gate money, you know, to get back up on your feet or to get a bus ticket to go back home. They or send whatnot. you to Bakersfield. Yeah, yeah, they <laughs> yeah pretty much. <laughs> Well, yeah, which did he does find himself the, at. Uh, did you see the apartment he was staying in in Berkeley? Um, with Mary Brunner? Uh, no, before that. Oh, no, go ahead and tell us about it. It was just really nice. I mean, there's nothing really to tell. It's just really nice. Like, It's like, you, you know that that thing is probably like... Oh, now like, it's probably... It's probably like 16000 at least 16000 a, a month. So it's <laughs> like... Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty expensive in San Francisco yeah. as well too. But he manages to mess that up though, because I know he was living like with a former cellmate. Yeah, or a he was a panhandler mate. for a while. He didn't even have a job. That's when he met Mary Bruner. Bruner, yeah. And he would ride the um, the transit sy- system all day, mm-hmm. just going back and forth between Oakland, uh, Berkeley, you know, San Francisco, whatever. Just basically seeing the city until like he would get to the end of the route, and then the bus driver would have to kick him off. But uh, one of those stops was to Berkeley, and this is where he met a librarian assistant, Mary Bruner. 23 years young, man. Yeah, and she was also somebody, too, and this would be a huge theme, um, you know, throughout this story, is somebody that, you know, came from a kind of a, a rough childhood. It wasn't as rough as Manson's, but, you know, it wasn't ideal. So she went to San Francisco, or Berkeley, we should say, because is Berkeley more... It's in, it's in the area. It's more northern. Is it uh, more Oakland where you have to cross the bridge? It's a little more Oakland, yeah. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you, you bring that up. Like, I think for the most part, like, especially when you're 23 years old. Mm-hmm. When you're 23 years old, you're in that really, like, I'm developing who I am kind of stage in yeah. your life. And, like, you're thinking about all the things that, like, I'm not in my home life anymore. I'm not in high school anymore. I'm not, you know, she's not under her parents' roof anymore. She's, mm-hmm. like, doing her own thing. And I think a lot of these girls that flocked to Manson are girls that were kind of going through that phase in life where, you know, they're they're flocking out of their city. Now they're in, you know, the the, the heartland of, like, free love. Mm-hmm. And, and then 1967, too, this is, like, where a lot of uh, young people were flocking to hate Nashbury uh, for that summer of love, yeah. uh, the hippie movement, basically. And it was, you know, free drugs, free sex, and, and whatnot. And to a young person, you know, that speaks to everything that you're going through at that time. You say free drugs, but it's like, how do they keep getting these free drugs? I, Somebody has to be making money off of I, this. And and by the time he got there, the drugs had kind of escalated, right? They started mm-hmm. as, like, just weed and, like, Mushrooms, just part, yeah. yeah, and they escalated. And by the time he got there, it was, like, LSD and stuff, mm-hmm. yeah. which is... which is crazy and you said that yeah like how did you get those drugs and that was one of the questions that i was asking and i couldn't find an answer for that at all and it seems like everybody was kind of the answer that i can only find was that everybody was kind of sharing you know this was a time where you know a year later um woodstock would happen where it's just like you watch that documentary on netflix where eventually you know they stop charging admission and people are there for four days and they just start feeding them free food and and hip, like most hippie kids have money anyways oh like, yeah usually, right <laughs> still <laughs> to this day still like, i'm sure even in the 60s berkeley was expensive i went to ucsb and like that's how the kids are there too like just messed up clothes looking all <laughs> shitty and hippie like and then they'll drive in in a range rover you know so <laughs> and a lot of money gr- for drugs a lot of the manson girls too that would defect later on you know a lot of them went back to their parents you know and yeah, a lot yeah, of them, yeah yeah like yeah, would yeah, buy them cars yeah. and whatnot yeah. like so i mean they did like maddie was saying like they did have s- some kind of income to support you know this habit yeah but the the, the weird part was the lsd though yeah because that that's man-made like i don't think they were buying that from drug dealers i think that's where the 
government is, stuff comes in. What school? Brainwash. What school did Unabomber go to? Oh, he actually Harvard. went to Berkeley. Harvard. Harvard. Berkeley? Berkeley? Harvard? I'm not sure. I but he, he spent some time in Berkeley. Yeah, oh. he did. Yeah. What's, I think during what, his ma- uh, master's program. His brain was also fried on LSD, right? Yeah. yeah. Wait, was it? I don't remember. Yeah. I, I, don't. I thought he was part of the Harvard LSD experiments. The Harvard? Where they would like take students and... That prison and system thing where they would put people... Wait, which uh, Harvard? Yeah, Harvard. Th- yeah, that's like where they messed him up and told him, you know, they would yeah. take make him write an essay and then, oh, you know, yeah. d- totally dissect him and whatnot. But yeah, he, he would also, yeah, at that time. Yes. When he, I don't know if he went to Harvard, but I think that he participated in LSD experiments mm-hmm. at Harvard. Oh, yeah, he yeah, got hit yeah. for yeah. Harvard. Yeah. 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 yeah, he was like 16 years old when he was doing those experiments. Really? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, so, yeah, all these like Northern California schools where they're like super progressive at the same time, I'm pretty sure they're like, the government was there like... Yeah, in my, in my mind, it's like I don't see why anybody in control wouldn't take advantage of that many kids in a group, like experimenting with drugs. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, I don't think it's that far-fetched that the government would, the, the government, you know, whoever that is. The man, would, man. Yeah, the man, bro. The government's yeah. giving them drugs. <laughs> but but I don't, I don't think it's far-fetched to think, hey, we got a bunch of kids that are willing to take anything. Like, let's just give some influ- influential people drugs and tell them it's, you know, mm-hmm. Jesus or whatever and... So I, I think a lot of the LSD came from that. Yeah, I can see that totally. Yeah, because, I mean, you talk about the crack epidemic. You know, how did that get out into, you know, you know the ghettos of America and whatnot? So I can totally see that. But to move the story along, he meets Mary Bruner um, at, you know, Berkeley, and he moves in with her. And at first it wasn't a romantic relationship because as the story goes, you know, they, you know, he was like a courting process. And, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, they did develop a romantic relationship. And she actually got pregnant by him. I don't know if they actually developed the romantic relationship as much as he was just conning her. She had, <laughs> she had a place to live. Mm-hmm. And in Berkeley, that was better than the place that he was living in with an inmate prior to this. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, by any means necessary, I feel like he had... He kind of had that mentality now, so it's like I'll make her fall in love with me. I'll totally con her, and like, on in a few amount of months, like there were already all these women out, like mm-hmm. also living in there with with them, and like the the birth of the the Manson family kind of came from that place. Yeah, because when she would go to work and basically provide for Manson, he would you know take trips out to hate Mashbury. You know, he'd cross that bridge and he'd you know spend time out in I believe it was Golden Gate Park where we saw um Nails. Yeah, um Outside Lands Fest. Yeah. And it's crazy to think back on it. I'm like, "Oh yeah, you can totally see cuz it's a humongous park. Mm. It's basically a fucking forest." Yeah. And they like they showed pictures of it and you know at every corner um you would see people preaching, you know, about, you know, different, you know, religions because this at this time you know, a lot of kids are rejecting, you know, the status quo. You know, they're rejecting, you know, your mom and dad's religion that's been yeah. indoctrinated into them. They're rejecting, you know, society. So they're open to new ways of thought. You know, at the same time, the Beatles, you know, after Sergeant Pepper, um, you know, they introduced, you know, um, Eastern, you know, religions, the... Um, you know, the guru um, mentality, the Rolling Stones did this. And, you know, you would see a lot of these uh, people, you know, out in, you know, Golden Gate Park. And Manson saw that and he goes, well, I, I, can, I got, you know, what, it, you know, everybody might want to hear. And he <laughs> did talk like that. too. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> as we covered in the last episode, you know, he had, you know, a, a prison education. You know, he learned from the pimps. And there, how to control women, how to make them, you know, do their will. He also learned, you know, self-help, you know, from that, you know, 
<laughs> turn of the century Tony Robbins guy, you know, how to make friends and influence people. So he, he's been indoctrinated how to basically control people. And he also has the aid of LSD. That's right. So he can, he can make, he, you know, he was taking this as well. But, you know, in smaller doses, he would give his followers yeah. larger doses and then he would microdose himself. That, that's what I thought was interesting. I saw, uh, I think it was just like the Diane Sawyer, the straight up like, you know, mm-hmm. vanilla Manson documentary. And one of the girls was saying that like, that she took a bunch of LSD and she's like, I don't really remember him taking that much. Though. Yeah. Yeah. He probably didn't even take any. Man. Oh, he probably he was a went. little guy. He would have probably yeah. died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so basically that allowed him to get into their minds. So slowly he started having girls come into, um, you know, Mary's home. And I believe uh, the first girl um, that came in was. Lynette Fromm, which I'm was sorry, squeaky. I mix them all up. I'm not sure. Yeah, I know. Like, like after a while, in uh, here. yeah, yeah, it was Lynette Fromm, so squeaky, so that oh. redhead that you see, um, and she's crazy as hell too. Because when you watch those documentaries, like she's the one that's she like went throwing further. Yeah, yeah, she kept trying to kill people even after. Yeah, yeah, and it's amazing she's not still in jail because like you see documentaries of her, she's the one you know taking out buck knives and throwing it yeah, into the, the the table. She's cleaning the shotguns and she's saying she's the one I think that said. The famous quote on one of those documentaries, like, if you have to kill someone, it's not, there's no wrong or right. You just do it. Fuck, dude. <laughs> so she's one of the first, she's the second girl, and she and Mary Bruner live in this apartment together. I sure did. <laughs> Awkwardness. <laughs> okay. So anyways, he would take the, he would take them uh, eventually you know, in this, uh, you know, hippie-made van or bus, if you will, um, up and down the West Coast. And what they would do, though, is that they would stop, you know, whether it be Venice Beach or whether it be Seattle, and he would tell people that, you know, he is the son of man, and he would say yeah. it really slow. He would say, Charles, Charles Willis Manson, so oh. like man's son. Yeah, he definitely had that Messiah thing going. Yeah, the, like like the the rebirth of Jesus mm-hmm. thing going. Mm-hmm. But that was my question actually, because that's why the, with that last awkward science. Because I was thinking, I don't remember how uh, they got from Northern California to L.A. Like, well, I don't remember that middle ground. I went off on so many tangents. I don't remember how they moved. For, well, they yeah. they um, that's a good question. Like, well, what they would do though is because going back on you know Manson's you know past is he would steal cars, and so eventually he and he got a bus. Um, you know, through stealing cars and he would trade people to, to, you know, evade, you know, the law basically is he would trade people these other cars and he eventually obtained this bus with, you know, his eight and nine followers at this time. And, you know, they made it up just like the Partridge family bus. You you could say with hearts and flowers and shit. This is kind of, so when they're in San Francisco, they, um, Manson starts believing that a lot of black people start moving to San Francisco. So he's like, the crime's going up in San Francisco, man. Even though they're committing all these crimes. That, that's like one of the tangents I went off of with the Black Panthers and stuff. Because in some of those documentaries, you see clips of the Black Panthers. And they're saying like pretty radical stuff. Like we're going to make Vietnam look like a cakewalk or whatever that type of mm-hmm. shit. Like race war stuff, right? Yeah. And Manson was obsessed with race war. Mm-hmm. So that was like one of the tangents I went off on was like with all the LSD and the mind control and all that stuff could could their little cult gang thing have been a like a tool used to kind of to kind of put down the Black Panthers? 
that was like one of the little tangents I went mm. off on. Yeah, because you do see that too. Like when he would be on campus of Berkeley or whatever, he would see, you know, you know, Black Panthers or, you know, just even just, you know, woke, I guess you could call it, you know, black students. And it set him off because in prison, you know, it's very segregated. And I guess later on in life, you know, he would be one of the main instigators of, I guess, the Aryan Brotherhood or whatnot. But it's very, you know, black or white, you know, then you have Mexican. I'm sure everybody here has seen Blood In, Blood Out, but it's very segregated. Sure, and, everyone here has been to prison. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that mentality has been ingrained in him. For somebody that's been in prison for basically 90% of his life, you know, that's going to set him off that, oh, wait, what? They're over here, you know, wanting, you know, equal rights yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, and this yeah. is... At the same time, I believe that, you know, Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. Uh, Malcolm X had just been assassinated. So, I mean, it's it's a very... Yeah, the Black Panthers were, like, on the rise. Oh, yeah, yeah very yeah, much yeah, definitely. so. Afini Shakur, you know, <laughs> she's yeah. out there blowing up buildings and yeah, whatnot. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's a very tumultuous time. And then you got this person that's barely making it out into the real world after 90% of his life has been spent in prison. So he still got that prison mentality. It's pretty nuts. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Go for it. No, I was just thinking like, you know, all those crazy things that we're discussing right now, they're not that like crazy than what was going on during like going on right now. You know, we were just talking to uh, Stephen Choi from RX Bandits and Mm -hmm. I don't know if that that episode's not out yet. But uh, he talks about a couple days, sir. He he brings up Antifa and things like that. And like, you know, these radical movements that are going on right now. You know, and like there's this like very like white power movement yeah. going on. Like what is it, what are they called? Those dudes that wear like Far New Balances. Right. <laughs> they wear New Balances. <laughs> what are they? What are those dudes? They all have the same haircut. Wear New Balances, and they walk around with tiki torches. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever they are called, those uh, alt right or alt right kind of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's like these like, Antifa people, and there's like all this very divided country. And, and at this time, it seems very divided. You know, like there's mm-hmm. this like Black Panthers and. And the Klan is going on, and Manson's trying to start a race war, and all these things. Yeah. It it seems very. And then you look at the spike of serial killers during this time period, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and then we still have serial killers today, but the thing that's been spiking over the last you know few years has been like the spike of mass shooters, mm-hmm. and you know, just kind of crazy. Like you know, one has kind of replaced the other, but at the same time, like there's it's in the same vein, yeah. kind of. Yeah. And then another thing on that too is like that you have v- the Vietnam War being oh, yeah. broadcasted on you know tv every night oh and now it's like we have more extreme violence being broadcasted on our cell phones that was the beginning of it though that's when they Mm -hmm. i think wasn't that the first war where they were actually showing like oh yeah these are are like your dead neighbor boys that went to war Mm -hmm. that's like his body parts right there yeah yep but the opposite is also true like uh you do have all those hateful movements and stuff but but uh you also have like positive movements that are kind of sometimes overtaken by or like infiltrated by nefarious forces. So well, like, I th- I, you mean like Black Lives Matter? Like ex- Black Lives exactly. Matter is totally positive. Exactly. But then sometimes you'll get like Black Lives Matter and they'll and you'll get this random thing where they'll you know mess something up. Or I don't know any examples of that, but I do know examples of like uh, Occupy Wall Street when that was going on mm-hmm. and that was really big. How that was like super peaceful and like you know no problems, and then all of a sudden you get some dumbasses like burning a building or whatever and one mm. super concrete example of that was the wto protest i think it was in 1999 in washington and that was also one of those uh super peaceful protest positive movement things and uh later on they found out that the people that started the rioting were uh 
you know, the typical where they're wearing matching uniforms, they come out of nowhere, they're not part of like the clique, they come out of nowhere, they start burning shit, they get arrested, and then they disappear. They don't have a record or anything. Yeah. And that happens, you see that in Africa too, with like the, uh, the what's that called, the Arab Spring and stuff like that, where people are protesting for freedom and like trying to, oh, you know, like ch- change their government. In, yeah. yeah, and then and then because they're almost too effective with their peaceful ways and stuff, it's almost easier for the government or whoever to come in and kind of just add a couple of shitheads to it and be like, Oh, you see, you guys are violent. You guys are fucking things up. I feel like that's almost what Manson did to the hippie movement. Oh yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, hundred like, percent. Oh, peace and love, peace and love. We don't want war. Like they're almost a bit too effective at fighting war and stuff like that with their like peaceful ways. And oh yeah. Putting the flower in, some, in the gun and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you just add some like, like ra- like random Nazi shithead or whatever. Because Manson basically became like what every like you know conservative parent you know was like. Up, oh, I knew those hippies were no yep, good. Yep. And like every fear that you know that you know this rejection of you know where every house is the same. You know you have to dress a certain way. Oh, the girls wear skirts, guys wear pants. Mm-hmm. The girls stay at home, and you know they do this. You know they have to be faithful to one man, and the man can do whatever he wants, kind of thing. Like that challenge, that mindset, and. Th- even though, like, you know, in a, for all intents and purposes, you know, Woodstock is a great example. You know, it was it was all about love and, you know, you know, uh, opposing the Vietnam War or whatever. A lot of positive stuff, you know, that that challenged, you know, the status quo. And then you got someone like Manson, who's kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing coming into this movement and basically doing like what he would do um, early on is he would adopt things that he liked you know, from certain movements Mm -hmm. or certain train of thoughts, you know, taking out, you know, all of those positive things and implementing, you know, his negative influence into them. Once they get down to Los Angeles, like Manson full on adopts, like reading the Bible scriptures to, to his followers and like taking LSD and like Mm -hmm. just straight up, like, you know, trying to convince people that, you know, the Beatles are writing songs directly for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's like, definitely here are some things that, you know, you can go to any like Sunday, Sunday sermon and hear the similar things, but at the same time, he's manipulating them to, to fit his narrative. Yeah, yeah, I mean. And this is yeah. what he did, though, because he, he took a group of eight or nine, you know, women, basically, mostly women. You know, he would eventually get men in his group, and he would take them, you know, up and down the West Coast. And just like those pimps taught him, he would take misfits, you know, like Mary, you know, like, you know, Squeaky, Lynette Fromm. You know, then he would obtain, you know, Susan Atkins, you know, up and down, you know, these coasts. He would find these um you know, just to, I don't want to say anything negative, you know, about these people, or I should probably, but you know, there's a little touch. Yeah, know? they're like mentally deficient. Yes, it's it's like how uh, terrorist groups recruit terrorists. Like they don't go to, they don't go to like people that have their heads on their shoulders and stuff like Correct. that. They kind of pick it. Like there was that shoe bomber dude that that tried to sneak on the plane yes. with like a bomb an issue. And then when when they interviewed him or not interviewed him, but then when you see him talking stuff, it's like man, this guy his He's brain is messed up. Something's you know. Yeah, and that's what he would do too. Even with that's the what men. insane clown posse does too. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Limp biscuit, come on, man. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah. So he would go up and down the West Coast, basically recruiting his family. And at first, you know, a lot of them would say, you know, this this was the happy years, you know, because in a <laughs> sense, maybe Manson, you know, was actually looking for the family that he never had. You know, I mean, he was he doing it a little bit weird by you know taking it because these women would all have sex with him and they would all have sex with each other. 
And then, you know, he would go to get whatever they needed, you know, like their drugs, you know, like the cars or car parts. You know, he would basically prostitute out these women, you know, to to the men, you know, of society to get what he needed. And um, he started to implement more things from the hippie movement as in, you know, with dumpster diving. And a real quick story on that. I had a cousin or I have a cousin. He didn't die or anything. Uh, he lived in Portland, and that was a big movement up there as well, where it was just like, okay. We That's don't- still a movement. People are just, like, fucking stealing paper cups, and they're like, I'm going to draw a mustache on it. Now it's an art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Portland is a weird place. But, you know, he took this from the hippie movement where, you know, they, they would go behind, you know, grocery stores, and they would basically dumpster dive for food, you know, and they would show that. You know, they would come up with, you know, a whole head of lettuce or a whole vine of tomatoes or, you know, slightly expired ragu sauce or something like that. And that's how they would live. You know, it was, um, it was freedom for them. And they, they said that they all lived, you know, in one unit. And when Charles was in prison, you know, he met, um, producer Phil, Phil Kaufman. And now I don't know if you guys know about Phil Kaufman or not, but Eric on a previous episode, um, I forgot, I think it was, you know, crazy stories or whatever. One of those like random episodes, like we're in a pinch, you know, we just come together. But he, um, he, he's, he went to prison because he, um, Graham Parsons died of uh, an overdose. Graham Parsons, the country singer, I believe he died of an overdose. And his, one of his final wishes was to be cremated in Joshua tree national park. Mm-hmm. Now what happened was, is he died of an overdose. Phil got note of this and, you know, he <laughs> hijacked his body from LAX drove it out to Joshua Tree National Park and set his body on fire. <laughs> and, you know, set a bunch of other stuff on fire. So, like, too. the uh, U2 has that album, Joshua Tree. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that, but yeah. cool. But anyway, so he meets, Matson met Phil Kaufman in prison, and Phil said, you know, hey, when you get out, because I like I like the tunes that you're writing over here in prison and whatnot, you know, I have a guy at Universal Studios that, you know, I can hook you up with. So Matson's whole agenda, too, was, you know, this, this ride was to basically recruit this family of women to get him to get them to do things for him to get what he wanted. And now this is straight out of the playbook of, you know, how to gain friends mm-hmm. and, you know, influence people, you know, that guru book. And, you know, to get people to think, hey, what you want is also what I want. Yeah. And so basically what he wanted is he wanted to be a, a superstar in LA as a recording artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he thought he could be bigger than the Beatles. There was he was he would literally say that like if I had people backing me man I would be bigger <laughs> than the Beatles man and we listened to some of his music I'm pretty sure you'll insert it into one of the episodes did you put it in the last episode I didn't uh, a little bit I don't I listen think, yeah. I don't listen to the show <laughs> I, 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 think, I think it was I think it was yeah. I forgot I think so. but um did he like the Beatles or not he loved oh, he the yeah, Beatles he was obsessed with the Beatles yeah yeah the Beatles Who were also on a lot of LSD on a at lot of LSD time. but they were extremely talented he was not on that level no see. Because I never liked any of the music from that era, really. I like. I don't like. I'm the only person that doesn't like the Beatles. I was really, really like, and I tend to think that sometimes pop culture is is mind control. Uh huh. That's where like I started connecting a lot of the LSD and a lot of Manson to like government experiments and stuff. The, there's some bullshit as like um the, Beatles songs. Yeah, there's a lot of bullshit as Beatles songs. <laughs> and like, uh, did you guys look into Laurel Canyon and that film studio where they would all hang out? Oh yeah, like yeah. all that. All that that was um, after World War Two, or during World War Two. That was like an anti-aircraft military uh, setup, you uh-huh. know, because in case somebody invaded or whatever. And then after that, they used it as a film studio for. They said it was to like 
cut the movies of the you know those movies you see of the atomic bombs going off yeah all that stuff they said that that's what it was for which is like that's like kind of random but they said <laughs> that that's what it was for and then like i guess it was officially operational through 1969 and then that, like that's where they were all hanging out is like this military base and another thing that i found interesting was another dude from that era that was like super famous or a lot of them i guess had dads who were super high up in oh the yeah like uh the, the guy the guy from the doors his dad uh jim morrison, jim morrison. Yeah, he was yeah. super high in the navy and uh you guys know the gulf of tonkin that false yeah. flag that got us into vietnam he was like influential in orchestrating the gulf of tonkin so it just nuts. it just seems like uh like pop cult pop culture and like famous people i think they're intertwined with like with the government. I don't see why uh, the military would ever let anything like that just go unchecked without putting a little bit of their influence in it. You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, it's like, I mean, not to get too far off topic, but I mean, how do you get to, you know, pass things, you know, like, uh, you, you, fuck, Calvin Coolidge did this. Like, he, he, he passed a law, you know, on Christmas Eve, you know, where most people aren't paying attention. You know, they're, they're 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 with their families. They're opening up presents. They're cutting up turkeys. They're unwrapping tamales. If you're Mexican, you know, like they're they're doing all these other things. They're not paying attention. They're not paying attention to the news, so they're going to pass things, you know, under the radar because somebody is distracted. If, if you have Jimi Hendrix over here writing, you know, a badass song, or the Beatles, you know, dropping the White Album or Sgt. Pepper or whatever, or you know, the Doors, you know, this is the end. You know, if you're focused on that and you're not pay att- paying attention to, you know, what's, you know, really going on, then, I mean, then they, they they can just implement whatever laws they want. Yeah. I do think it's strange, though, because, like, the doors are pretty political. You know, they were talking mm-hmm. about, like, dead soldiers and, like, yeah. you know, all this stuff. And, like, I don't know if that would fit the narrative, but definitely something like, you know, what's really popular right now. I want to say Katy Perry, but I don't think she's that popular. I get Taylor it. Swift. Taylor yeah. Swift is, like, really big. Like Taylor Swift would fit fit that narrative yeah. of like ultimate pop star, like, like ultimate celebrity, like you know Jesus like figure in a way where like mm-hmm. you know it's the biggest face on on the earth, and like you know if if Taylor Swift like uh, came to your town, you would you would know about it kind of thing. You know? Yeah, but then we're also in this time frame too, where we're like basically twenty years or so removed from you know World War Two, where like the you know you still have the draft, the whole nation was you know converging to you know fight that effort you know like the whole nation like everybody was unified as one it was like after september 11th so you know pretty much everybody's grandparents my grandparents included you know even my dad you know they were in the military somehow or some way you know but does that mean that there's a conspiracy maybe but also well, too, I maybe mean, not. you brought up the Gulf of Tonkin, like things like that were happening where like all, yeah. all of a sudden everybody became super patriotic mm-hmm. and it was it was basically a scam like yeah, it was, yeah, people yeah. just got scammed yeah. into patriotism scammed into hating yeah. like communists or whatever yeah their the agenda was to go to vietnam and you know what wh- however you may feel about 9-11 maybe we got scammed <laughs> again oh yeah check that episode out <laughs> if you want <laughs> but anyways uh he he contacts that producer at universal studios named gary stromberg now gary stromberg went you know to see manson you know at venice beach where he was giving one of his famous sermons man and he was preaching about you know no possessions and you know you know free love and whatnot and what he witnessed that um, one guy questioned him. He goes, well, if you believe in no possessions, why do you have this souped up, you know, bus 
that, you know, is full of, you know, all of life's luxuries. And I guess the story goes, Manson throws him the keys and is like, go ahead and take it, man. I don't even care. And he looked at, you know, Gary Stromberg and he's basically just like, oh, my God, this guy's the real deal. And I guess the story goes as well. Like he wanted to make a film about black Jesus where <laughs> he, he, he would, um, you know, make Jesus black. And then, you know, the Romans. Stromberg wanted to make the film or Manson wanted to make no, the film? No, uh, Stromberg oh, okay, wanted to okay, make okay. the film. And um, basically, Jesus would be black, and then the Romans would be played by basically, you know, you know, southern rednecks. That's the actual quote I have okay. here. And then Manson would give him like all these weird, you know, suggestions. Obviously, he didn't like the fact that you know Jesus was going to be black, but he goes, you know, this is what Jesus, this is what I would do, man. And then he would start, you know, kissing, you know, having a woman kiss his feet, and then he would kiss her feet back, and then just all these like weird nuances and whatnot. And so I guess eventually that producer was a little freaked out, and so he'd lost contact with them. And um, this is also, too, where he meets Dennis Wilson. Um, Dennis Wilson was the original drummer. For the Beach Boys. And oh, brother yeah. of, you know, Brian Wilson, the leader of the Beach Boys, like Art said. Yeah, like, uh, so Dennis Wilson just randomly uh, meets some of his girls, like, while they're hitchhiking, right? He just picks them up. Yeah, it was uh, Patricia who Patricia Krenwinkel, who would play a big role later on, and Ella Jo Bailey. Who you know, it's it's never really said, but in any podcast or anything I saw about this, but Dennis Wilson sounds like a douchebag. He and th- here's the thing too about <laughs> you're Dennis about Wilson. to protect him. He's kind of a douche. No, like, I'm not going to protect him. <laughs> but here's the thing about Dennis Wilson. Okay, everybody knows Brian Wilson. You know the genius behind you know the the Beach Boys. You know the sound, the producer, whatever. Dennis was more or less the fuck up younger brother who uh, all he wanted to do was he was the only surfer in the group. All he wanted to do was be a burnout on the beach and surf all day. And um, he would do weird shit like this, and the family would continually have to get him out of trouble where he would pick up strangers. He would be getting taken advantage of. You know, he was you know heavily influenced by the time. He donated a lot of money to some, like, fake prince in Africa once. <laughs> he got the email? Yeah. <laughs> I got this email. I better help him out. But yeah, he was a total fuck up and he was kind of a douche. He was just like picking up women to like sleep with them on, you know, because he was he was well off. He was a beach boy. Mm-hmm. So he lived off of Sunset and I believe he lived in Roy Rogers old home. And I guess the way they explain it is like it's kind of like a cabin. I mean, off of Sunset, you know, a cabin's not going to be like a cabin that you see like in the Sequoia National Far- uh, Park. But it was a very nice, luxurious. Park. What? No, nothing. Oh, park. I'm sorry. No, no I just thought it was funny. Go. <laughs> so it, i mean it's not like an actual cat like a log cabin like little house on the prairie or whatever but it was you know dressed up you know old western style yeah, yeah. on the sunset that strip. sounds cool yeah it was cool. cool as hell man so he takes uh patricia and ella joe bailey back to his house you know they smoke joint you know they have fun and he leaves to go to work to go record with his brother and he comes back later on that night to see that there's like 30 or 40 people Full in on debauchery man yeah it's like the end of gin and juice by snoop dogg man. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the dad that's when he meets charles manson for the first time yeah and what i thought was interesting is that his first words to manson were are you gonna hurt me now you look at dennis wilson he's kind of like maddie he's very chiseled he's got the strong chin you know he takes he's not afraid to take off his shirt that's it and uh, he's probably <laughs> like standing maybe like 5'10 at hit the shortest. Or I wish I was 5'10. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing. Here's the thing about it. And I thought about this too, but there's something like weird about like if you had to fight a f- five foot tall, because he's five foot tall, like yeah. straight up five foot. dwarf. 
And but if you see like this like homeless looking person, you don't know if this dude has AIDS. You don't know if yeah. this dude's like packing needles something. You know like, and there's like a bunch of people partying at your house. Like it's a little sketch. You, like you could be the toughest guy all of a sudden. And it's uh-huh. like you could be the toughest dude, but you ain't got no cure for AIDS. So <laughs> good luck fighting this dude. I think so, at this time it would just be gonorrhea. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> oh man, I want to fight gonorrhea. <laughs> <laughs> he go clap back. Um, but anyways, he goes. He says to Manson, "Are you gonna hurt me?" And he goes. He basically says to him, "Like, do I look like I'm gonna hurt?" Hey, me? brother, I ain't, I ain't hurt no one. Yeah, and invites him in, and you know, they start having a big old orgy. He basically says, "You can hurt any one of these girls, but man." This is the Beach Boy guys' yeah. house, right? Yeah. So he invites him into his own house. Own yeah. house. And he yeah. we're having an orgy. Yeah, and he's wearing his robes and whatnot, eating his food and, and whatnot. But basically, they would stay there for about two or three months. And um, Dennis would, was paying for everything. He was paying, you know, for them. I think he was totally enjoying this lifestyle, too. Imagine you know? the smell, though. That's yeah, they true. were the cleanest <laughs> of all I people. I don't know, dude. Bunch of hippies. <laughs> but yeah, you, you said it, though. He probably loved this lifestyle. He loved having a house full of women like you said he was kind of a douchebag but at the same time you're young you're rich you got a house full of women you're living quote unquote the dream and so he was basically footing the bill for the entire family to live there buying all of their food uh paying for all their medical expenses i guess he's they said um in 2018's in you know inflation numbers it was almost like a million dollars he spent to help get rid of their gonorrhea (laughs) that's funny (laughs) And, um, you know, they would, like, take cars, and they would crash them, and he would, you know, have to repair them and whatnot. Manson was just driving his Ferrari. Yeah. And um, at the same time, though, they started to form a bond, um, Dennis and Manson. And Manson, you know, was really ardent about, like, hey, man, like, I got a lot of songs. I got a lot of material. Like, we should record together. Like, you guys should use some of my material. (laughs) I wrote a song about a shoe, man. (laughs) (laughs) He had a song about a garbage dump. (laughs) 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 That song is fucking horrible. Manson does have some pretty cool music, I got to say. Like, Cease to Exist was a great example. Some of it's bullshit. Like, we just said some Beatles songs are kind of bullshit. This guy's got some bullshit songs. Oh, this is is some Arby's quality bullshit. <laughs> the song's about an RB sandwich I found in a dumpster, man. You can't throw that stuff away. Like, yeah, that's that's him. Isn't their greatest hits album? <laughs> no. Charles Manson's greatest he's hits. Got, he's got like 10 really good songs and like 500 terrible that's songs. That's kind of a lot, though. 10? 10? 10? That's, that's one bad. good album. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's impressive. But, um, so, you know, he introduced them to a lot of people within the industry. Um, uh, one of those being, you know, Brian Wilson, who totally denies this, but a producer who was there said, you know, yeah, Manson did record, you know, with Brian Wilson. And, you know, those tapes will probably never see the light of day. However, he also introduced him to a couple of other um, uh, people in the industry. Um, Terry Melcher, who is the son of Doris Day. He was a very popular producer of this time. When you think, ab- when you think about it and when you look at his catalog, he was basically the, the Dr. Dre of the 1960s mm-hmm. or the Kanye West or whoever the hot producer is right, right now. But he, you know, he did, you know, the birds like uh, Turn, 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 Mr. Tambourine Man and, you know, a lot of those uh, records. And so this was a big deal for Manson. And so he was trying his best, you know, to impress him. And he was like, Terry at first was the same. He was very impressed by the fact, oh, this guy has control over all these women. And the story goes that Terry Melcher, you know, was having an affair with one of the Manson girls. Were these girls... uh how do you say it? 
were they established in the area or were they just kind of like runaway they were like young drifters okay so so that's some of them yeah yeah because that's where i got the term uh throwaway kids Mm -hmm. another conspiracy theory type term where they take uh like like kids that nobody cares about and just kind of use them for whatever they want is that what these girls were just basically like Mm -hmm. girls nobody would come looking for okay yeah because somebody yeah yeah, because he collected these girls up and down the west coast like when they went on their magical mystery tour man And, um, you know, a lot of them, like uh, Susan Atkins, you know, who plays a big role later on, um, you know, she was from the area. She invented the Atkins diet. She was super ripped. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, you know, some of them were from the area. Some of them were from San San Francisco. And some of them were even from, like, Alabama and Maine. And he would, like, daily exercise them in in brainwash, right? Oh, yeah. Like, he would would make them trip. And he would do, what's that mirroring thing that they would talk about? Did you guys get into it? Oh, yeah. Where he would, like he would like go up to them and like put his hands next to them and then they would have to like copy everything he was doing almost like kind of daily exercising them in brainwash to do whatever that's he wanted nuts to. i didn't see that yeah he would make a face like make a weird face at them and they would have to like immediately copy him crazy yeah yeah, yeah i didn't see that at all yeah. yeah and um he that's where you know it came into effect too where he would you know microdose himself with lsd but give them full doses yeah, as, yeah, as well yeah. and a lot of people you know, like Terry Melcher and whatnot. Th- these were people like buying studio time for him to, you know, to record some of these, re- these records. Cause later on, you know, there would come a record called lie in the terror dome or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've probably seen the picture. I'll post it on Instagram, you know, I mean, looking all crazy, whatever. And it looks like a time magazine cover <laughs> or whatnot. But, um, that's where a lot of those, um, records came from is that, you know, Dennis would pay for studio time, Terry Melcher. Oh, sorry. I, just put, sorry. Put I thought that was your dog. Um, but you know, they would, um, you know, at Manson's request, you know, buy him studio time in exchange for his women. So he was basically prostituting out his women to get, you know, what he wanted and what he wanted was to be a rock star. It's weird that he could use them as currency against people that like would seemingly already have as many women as they want. Like, I don't see why they would have to have sold him studio time for women when they were like already rich and powerful studio executives and stuff. Well, it's kind of weird. I mean, at the same time though, somebody has got to pay for it and obviously Manson's not going to pay for it. And Terry at the same time, he's what he is, is he's a producer. He's not a record executive. He doesn't, you know, Mm -hmm. he's not, he doesn't have the power to sign anybody, but all he can do is be like, Hey, let's make some demos so we can pass it on to, Mm -hmm. you know, the powers that be so we can get you signed. And the industry, which, you know, he would come to hate was a lot of like, you know, politics basically. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot of like, you scratch my back, I might scratch yours. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I guess if he was always hanging out with girls, that would help. Yeah. Oh yeah, dr- scratch a lot of people's backs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's at the same time though too. Um, they were starting to establish other bases. I believe um, at the same time they had a base. Uh, I want to say it was in Topanga Canyon called the Spiral uh, Staircase. And this is where they met um, Bobby Boussoulet, who was, I believe, a former porn star. And also, too, you asked that question, you know, where were they getting all these drugs? Um, Well, there was this guy who taught at UCLA who was um, trying to also, you know, supply the industry with, you know, LSD and I believe mescaline. What did he teach? Was he a chemist or something? Was he a teacher? Oh, okay. Oh, he (laughs) wasn't making it. Okay. What's mescaline? Do you guys know? 
exactly what that is. That's a that's a drug I hear I a lot about. It's psychedelic because Google it in the meantime. They talk about it in Fear and Loathing a lot. Yeah, I know, but I don't know. That's it, the only. Does anybody I know take from. it still? I don't think anybody really takes. I'm that. sure somebody in yeah. Oraldale does. I mean, <laughs> it, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like some easy find on the street. It doesn't sound fun either. If I show up like to the hood with fifty dollars, can I buy mescaline? That's my question. <laughs> <laughs> Depends um, which hood. I know. It's a. This is some fucking. Where, where, where was this? Oh, sorry. Where was the this house you're talking about that they got? The Tep- Spiral? Uh, Topanga Canyon. Is that near Laurel Canyon? I'm assuming so because everything right. to me, like I, I'm looking at the maps, the Google Maps mm-hmm. of everything, and it all kind of like looks like it's all within like those mm. Sunset Strip, Hollywood Hills area. Mm. So um, but you, you know how L.A. is. You move two feet to the left and you're already in another city. So You know who, you know who owns that, uh, what's it called? That, look, that Lookout Mountain Labs? They turned it into like a house, and the the dude from Thirty Seconds to Mars owns it now. Oh, Jared oh, Leto, yeah. crazy! Yeah, that's his house now. Wow, fucking nuts, right? <laughs> uh, apparently, mescaline is like peyote. Oh, okay. So I'm sure some people still do it. Oh, they tripping What's balls. What's that girl, though. Alejandra? I'm pretty sure she trips on that shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Did you guys notice also, like the speaking of tripping, like the cadence of all the girls, like everybody I've ever heard that fried their brain on lsd always mm-hmm. has the same cadence you know that like typical stoner cadence that people make fun of yeah i feel like there's one for people that their brains are just gone on lsd mm-hmm. too every interview of the girls always sounds the same and then like i mean this isn't i can't prove this but like everybody i know that's ever fried their brains too much on lsd has the same like talking cadence oh yeah um and then um, you talk about that too, like you, your mind goes into another realm that you don't use because you never use your full brain's yeah. capacity. And you have a little five foot dwarf, you know, basically mo- like you're clay and he's basically molding you. And eventually when they get to the spawn ranch, like they talk about it, like the ranch hands would be like, man, they just all were just like, it was like group think, you know, nobody had an individual uh, mindset or you know thought about anything it was all just whatever manson said they would regurgitate it do you have you i don't know if you guys have done acid i have never done acid but do you think that there's anything to that like that it would help you be more suggestible oh yeah definitely you, you think there is yeah. because it seems like i've it. done shrooms and i didn't feel like i was more like more easily persuaded but then again I don't, though, but i don't know if it's the same i don't think it's the same so. but, but then again though like he's consistently doing it yeah. Yeah. And then true. and then again though he's already affiliating himself with people that are just a little touched themselves. So it's never just like, you know, your strong-willed, you know, person. It's always going to be, you know, somebody that, you know, is searching for something. One of the girls said, you know, you know, her parents got divorced and her uncle raped her or whatnot. So she's touched a little bit already. So she's searching for, you know, true love basically. Somebody that's going to, you know, take care of her and heal heal those wounds. And you got this, you know, guy basically saying that he's christ and he's gonna heal you you know he's gonna die he would die for you man so you know what like you're feeling all this love and or quote unquote love and a lot of those girls are saying man it was everything i ever wanted and more meanwhile he's you know over not overdosing but you know giving him acid and mescaline and all these other things to play with their mind i mean that's what it was made for right after world war ii they made it as like a a, mind control a, drug. Yeah, they wanted to make a Manchurian candidate. Mm-hmm. So they were experimenting with different drugs to kind of mold people's brain mm-hmm. and like literally make assassins that would just do whatever they wanted them to do and then forget about Have it. You heard, like, did we already talk about the catcher in the rye theory? Mm-mm. About like how a lot of, like the guy that assassinated um, Kennedy, like they found catcher on the ride on his like kitchen table and like a lot of assassins, like 
they'll just find a copy of Catcher on the Ride on their kitchen table. Oh, shit. Yeah. Like, it's this constant theory of, like, does Catcher in the Ride make people want to kill other people? Like, these, these certain words in a certain, you know, sequence, like, trigger something in the brain. Kind of like those puzzles, like, from Cicada um, 3330 or whatever. Like 3301, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Like, that, it's like there's something within there. There's a message within the message. Yeah. So, but anyways, um, he, you know, you know, he's affiliated with all these big wigs within the industry. And eventually he gets one of the songs, and I mentioned it earlier, called Cease to Exist. Um, I guess the story goes is he gave permission to Dennis to record this with the Beach Boys because, you know, hey, if I got, you know, music out there, you know, I'm this is how I'm going to get my record deal. And who's the Beach Boys at this time are pretty much the second biggest band behind the Beatles. You know, they're not the Beatles. But they're the second best or the second biggest band behind them. If I have my name in the writing credits, or I have, you know, if I can make that claim, then this is how I get, you know, my fame, my fortune is by doing this. So he gives permission to Dennis to use "Cease to Exist," which I gotta say is probably Manson's best song. That's your favorite song? I, I gotta say, yeah, <laughs> it's his best song out of all of them. And apparently, it was the Beach Boys' favorite song too because they used it, but they changed it to "Never Learn to Never Learn Not to Love." And this pissed Manson off because, you know, they changed the arrangement around a lot. And basically, they gave him no credit for it. And it just says it was written by Dennis Wilson. And so what happened was, is Manson was pissed off. Dennis was already pissed off at Manson because he was slowly starting to see, like, man, these girls are fucking up my life. You know, they're fucking up, you know, my Ferrari. You know, they're causing me, you know, almost a million dollars worth of gonorrhea treatment. You know, they're fucking up my white carpet in my house and shit, like in my cabin and fucking. Fucking up my couch, man. (laughs) Yeah, like Charlie Murphy. What's gonorrhea treatment anyways? Like, and is it a, is it a bacteria? Is it antibiotics? No, I assume it it would be like a pill. Or is it a virus? I don't know, Jesus. Let us know on the Instagram. (laughs) 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 Um, But. You know, he, he's he's slowly starting to, like, remove himself from Manson, but he doesn't know how to do it because he's afraid of him at this point. And so he see, and Dennis's viewpoint, he sees this, okay, I'm going to use this song as basically payback for everything that you guys have taken from me. So I'm going to take this from you, and it's kind of like a passive-aggressive um, move on yeah. Dennis's part. And what Charlie does is he goes down and he talks to one of the producers and he gives a bullet to them and he goes like, what's this? And he goes, I want you to give this to Dennis, man. Oh, shit. Oh, dang, yeah. I want you to give this to Dennis, man. See, I was doing uh, Charles Manson. <laughs> I started fucking flipping out in my chair. Um, <laughs> I want you to give this to Dennis, man, and you tell him that he's lucky that his children are still safe today. Shit. And yeah. then the producer gives it to Dennis and then Dennis basically says, you know what, fuck this. He moves out of his house. They... They do that shit in that movie Drive, you know, when he hands that kid that bullet. Oh, that's right. It's a pretty huh? intimidating move. Damn. Manson influencing good-ass yeah. movies. Oh. But um, Wilson quietly moves out of his house. Um, and now this house wasn't owned by Wilson. He was renting it. And that's a, a big thing, I guess, like in Hollywood. Nobody ever owns anything. It's just all for show. Mm-hmm. They rent it from somebody else, like Bill, like, uh, Bill Gates or something. <laughs> And so he lets the landlord evict the, the Manson family out, and he severs total ties with Manson completely. It's a good move. Oh, I don't. I, Solid yeah. move. Actually, it worked out for him that he was renting it, mm-hmm. but he didn't know that. Yeah, he didn't have to do nothing. Mm-hmm. So this starts a chain of events that starts to fuck with Manson. 
Manson takes his family out to Spawn Ranch in August of 1968 because they have nowhere else to go. Now, mind you, like I said, they had other, you know, spots that they were searching for because this family is slowly but surely starting to grow. It goes from, you know, eight to nine people. And we're looking at this time frame, about 20 to 30 people at this time. And he's got women. He's got men. He's got kids because him and Mary Bruner have a kid. He's, you know, possibly the father of a couple other people because they're just having random orgies. So it's everybody's kids. So... Mm -hmm. Um, they have to move, you know, to places that, you know, can facilitate these people. And one of these places is Spawn Ranch. Yeah, former movie set. Same place you were just talking about? I don't, I, I don't know about Spawn Ranch. It's no. like this cowboy uh -huh. western, like, movie set type of scenario. Yeah, they filmed a lot of B, you know, westerns out there. And then when you see pictures of it, and, you, and if you watch the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I believe they actually filmed there. Um, but, you know, it's basically rich crest with like a bunch of like old like 1700s uh ghost town uh -huh. looking you know buildings like there's a jail there's a saloon and you know there's old man spawns house you know off in the distance yeah. and whatnot. they're just straight up living there you know it's and this is when he kind of full-on becomes like preacher mode at this point you know he's preaching the bible even more he's preaching the Beatles lyrics even more. He's preaching. There's a race war coming. Yeah, in. I was gonna say, is he still into the race war? Thing? Yeah, he's full still. on into the race war. He's preaching the helter skelters coming. Yeah, what is helter skelter? I know it's a Beatles song, but what does it have to do with the race war? You I know, never put lyrically, together. lyrically, I don't know where he's getting the race war yeah, part. <laughs> because every time I hear race war, I hear helter skelter, but I don't know what the two. Have so to do with it was other. clearly his favorite Beatles song. Okay, and he kind of had this idea that he was going to become the messiah of like once black people were going to go to war with white people, and he thought black people were going to win, and he was going to become that messiah that kind of pulls pulls the white people back into like into the limelight kind of thing he, oh, okay. he was going to be that jesus christ figure and he kept calling it helter skelter because i guess he was quoting some particular lyrics from that song but i i so he he actually um that house i was talking about the spiral staircase um where you know he met you know gary henman and that's where you know one of his members bobby Boussoulet, had been living as well um, they were invited there to listen to the White Album when it was released, I believe, in November of 1968. So about a couple months after, you know, they moved to Spawn Ranch, they get invited to listen to the White Album. So I guess I'm trying to picture this because every documentary and, you know, source that I was looking at, you get invited over to listen to an album. Now, I'm picturing, you know, in the 60s, you know, you have, you know, these... Uh, record players that are basically furniture so it's kind of like a tv show so like art would you know invite me over to his house to watch game of thrones mm -hmm. or you know people would invite people over to watch hey let's watch a movie or whatnot i imagine that was like the same concept because i don't think people do this anymore but you know like hey i just bought the beatles album it's really good let's sit down you know do some mescaline let's do some shrooms or whatnot and listen to the new beatles you know album you know and i guess him and tex watson i this he meets him around yeah. this time as well. Listen to the White Album, and he becomes obsessed. Uh, a couple of the girls say that, you know, that's all he would listen to. Like, he would finish one disc, turn around, listen to the other one, put the other uh, disc on. Because it was a double album. So, basically, you're going to have four sides that you're listening to, uh, you know, this album. And, you know, he just kept listening to it over and over again. And he w um, was saying that the Beatles were talking to him. And they were saying that, hey, you know, there's going to be a race war. And, you know, what's going to happen with, you know, all these Black Panthers and you know, all these militant blackies, <laughs> basically, those are his words, not mine, um, is that, you know, they're basically, uh, basically they're going to overtake, you know, the white man because in prison, 
he saw that in his his words not mine that black people were inferior to white people mentally however they were physically superior to them therefore once they get militarized they were going to overtake the white man you know because he's seeing in the news you know he's seeing everything that's going on with the black panthers that they're going to eventually you know overtake the white man throw everybody out kill all the white people there's going to be this drastic race war and that the, eventually the you know the blacks are going to take over and rule everything but they're not going to know how to govern so this is where we come in man we're going to go into the desert and we're going to find the bottomless pit and when everything's all said and done and everybody else is laying on the wayside black is going to need our help man uh, i always wondered how he got that the uh from the white album well, I guess there was a Back couple. Back in the USSR. <laughs> yeah. Glass Onion, my aunt talks about how you got to follow the Glass Onion. So you listen to the White Album, it is like the happiest fucking... It's pretty psychedelic. Maybe, maybe you guys are all under MK Ultra, <laughs> and, I, and I'm not susceptible because I don't like the Beatles. Maybe. <laughs> maybe you guys I, are I dig just, it. I think I it's know. a pretty good album, but I do think that there's definitely some hidden messages in there. You think so? I'm oh, I definitely think. No, I definitely do think There's hidden that. messages, and then, um, not Paul McCartney, Paul, but John Paul, Lennon would talk about that. Paul McCartney's dead, by the way. He died a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that is true. There's no way anyone will convince me that that's not true. Oh, wait. That's an episode. Oh, wait. Huh? Isn't Paul McCartney the alive one? You fucking with me? Which one's which one's the one that's still pa- alive? Paul McCartney, Ringo oh, Starr, and Paul McCartney, quote unquote. There's a theory alive. that oh, okay. Paul McCartney died in a car accident. It, didn't he buy all of Michael Jackson's? He bought music. Michael Jackson's music. Yeah. yeah. No, Michael Jackson it's, bought the Beatles music. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Tangent. Yeah. So, anyways, the some of the the uh, the songs that were talking to Charles Manson, mind you, a lot of these songs are happy songs, and a lot of these songs are talking about actually the opposite of what he's referring to. But these songs that were talking to him, man. Were Blackbird, Revolution Number Nine, Revolution Number Nine, Piggies, Rocky Raccoon, which he thought was a racial slur to you know black folks, uh-huh. um, Sexy Sadie, which you know he nicknamed Susan Atkins previous to the album's release as Sexy Sadie, so that's how he thought you know they were talking to him, and Revolution Number Nine, and he th- also thought that the Beatles were challenging him to write better music kind of like how bob dylan challenged the beatles to write better music you know as opposed to you know you need to stop writing you know how i want to hold your hand he makes you know more socially conscious Mm -hmm. music you know he thought that the beatles were telling him to step his game up basically so he's like super narcissist oh Oh, yeah they must be talking to me type shit so what's in the lyrics i mean not, I don't expect you to read me the lyrics of Piggy, but is there <laughs> anything about like killing people in the song Piggy? Because they wrote Pig in Blood no. uh, and the murders and stuff, right? It's basically so, about wealth distribution, I want to say. like That's what I got from it. It's basically like, uh, listen to the Democratic debate. That's basically what like 90% of these songs oh, are talking about. And the only songs that are that talk about like you know killing, I believe there's a song where like, oh, me, Mr. Mustard, who did you kill? Like, he, they, he wasn't influenced by those songs at all. Like, those songs never come up. The songs that actually do talk about, you know, killing and warfare and whatnot are not songs that he cites as influences. Oh, weird. I think he just wanted some, something to back him up, you know? Like, there's... He wanted an influential voice to, like, echo his thoughts. And even though it wasn't really there... Mm-hmm. You know, the Beatles are a big name. So he's like, see, the Beatles agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what you see, like, in any any cult leader just kind of molds the message of mm-hmm. what it, whether it's like Christianity or whatever. They just take whatever yeah, I mean, message he was using the Bible and, just yeah. as much. So, yeah. And it, again, that's yeah. one of those themes where it's like he was taking things, positive things and molding them to fit his own narrative and tossing yeah. out all the good. Yeah. To quote 
the X Files. Even the devil can quote scripture to fit his purpose. Oh, that's, that's from the X Files. That's a good one. Um, so anyway, <laughs> deep bro. Yeah. Um, at Spawn Ranch, um, spot now mind you, Spawn Ranch is a former movie studio or movie set, and it also at this time is owned by Mister Spawn, who is the well into his eighties. Drew the cartoon Spawn as well. <laughs> Yeah, he was. And it's also from that Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. Hollywood. That whether he now, That's one thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A- again, it doesn't follow the actual facts of what really happened, but there's a lot of Easter eggs, like with you know the stuntman in there. Um, it's kind of like retribution for a lot of things th- that happened, what we'll talk about later. Um, but one of the uh, things that was true in there is that you know Spawn was basically being used for his ranch, in exchange for, you know, hey, they would help clean the ranch. They would help run the ranch. And also, too, he would have Lynette Fromm, Squeaky, there to please all of his sexual desires. Was there any, on Spawn Ranch, was there any, like, military prior use to it? Was it used for anything before movies? Like Not the, like that the I think it was just built for, straight up as for a movies? movie set. Okay. It was a ranch before, like, it was a movie set, but it was more or less just, like, like there was a doby there and there was like a bunch of goats there. Or something. It, I mean, it's in the middle of, like, it looks very Western. Like something you would see, like if you're headed out to like Kernbill kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it museum? looks, it fits the purpose. It looks the purpose. So, yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to film like a B grade movie, uh cowboy movie or whatnot, like that, that would be the place to go. Um, but it fit, you know, all 30 of the members out there, you know, they were, um, you know, running the, the horse, because I guess they had a horse riding business there as well. I mean, that's how they were able to make money from the ranch. And then Tex Watson, who was actually from Texas, he was, you know, in charge of that as well. Like, he was, you know, the main guy that, you know, to wrangle the horses and get, you know, the family members, you know, trained on how to do, you know, break in a horse and whatnot and show them how to, you know, get on the horse. And just because he was from Texas? Yeah, everybody in Texas knows how to do it. No, but he yeah. really did, oh, though. Yeah. So that that was, like, the, the cool And he was one of the only other few guys that actually, like, lived on on the property yeah i think it was like him and then um bobby boost no bobby Bus- i was gonna call him billy bob <laughs> billy bob thornton there was like clem or something like that like he was a another person that um one of the guys like he was like out of his mind basically he was mentally <laughs> deficient i should say that's the nicest way to put it and that was the only way to get him manson to get him to follow him was that you know he was a little mentally not there so um it was also at this time you know charles manson is still trying to make you know his album and he's trying to get into contact with terry melcher and terry melcher you know he's at the same time his mother doris day her husband his stepfather had passed away and he discovered that you know he was basically defrauding the family he had a lot of her finances you know wrapped up in bad investments had her signed up to do like you know really bad projects so his mom was in financial disarray and terry melcher being you know the only son of doris day um you know was like hey you know a lot of this stuff has to go on the back burner sorry mamas and papas sorry the birds you know sorry the doors i can't be you know be your producer right now i gotta take care of my mom you know and she was also like really sick at the time yeah she was really sick so he had to really you know focus on her which is a big thing to remember as well so earlier like when he was still hanging out with dennis wilson Tex and Charles actually gave Terry Melcher a ride back to his house, which it was at 100 or 1050 Cielo Drive. 
and he lived there with his girlfriend at the time, Candace Bergen, who you might remember from the hit TV show from the 80s, and I guess they revived it back recently, Murphy Brown. So <laughs> basically, watched it. Murphy I Brown. I only know it from uh, South Park. Yeah, so Murphy Brown and Terry Meltzer were the original residents of the infamous Cielo Drive house. And Manson saw that, you know, oh, okay, this is where Terry lives. And apparently he never was um, brought inside because Terry was very guarded. He wasn't like Dennis where, you know, everything was free for him to go. No, Terry was very guarded. And Manson saw that as kind of being rude. But he was like, hey, I'm going to use him for what I need him for. So whatever, I'm going to stay cool with him. So he's trying to get into contact with Terry. Terry's busy, you know, wrapped up, you know, with his mother, Doris Day. And finally, Terry says, you know what? Okay, I guess I'll go out to your ranch and, you know, hear some more of your songs. But, you know, uh, we'll see kind of thing, you know. He wasn't even that impressed. Like, you know, a lot of times, I don't know. I've heard different stories that he was more impressed sometimes and sometimes he didn't like him. Mm-hmm. It sounded to me like he wasn't that impressed. Like, he just heard it. He's like, oh, okay, this is going to some bullshit. Not mm-hmm. worth my time. Not worth putting this. You're not the next Beatles, so. And I guess, like, Charles, because you're absolutely right with that. Uh, he said that, you know, he was just like any other hippie, you know, with a guitar trying to make it in mm-hmm. L.A. Like, there was nothing special about him. He didn't have it. Yeah. But he felt guilty because Charles would guilt trip him and be like, well, hey, you, you've taken a lot from me. You've taken my drugs. You've taken my women. You yeah. know, hey, well, you can do this for apparently me. Apparently, even when he came to go listen to it, like, he had all the girls do, like, a show for him. Like, it was, like, this, like, mm-hmm. straight-up dance routine where, like, they'll, like, push Manson out in a wheelchair and he's like playing his guitar as you know and it's <laughs> yeah. like it was a bunch of bullshit a bunch was, of theater yeah. yeah and it was like he wasn't he didn't have time for this shit he had real stuff going on in his life and you know real he, artists to take care of yeah, and then his like, mom as well I, I, I get it I get it from his perspective like his you know we talked about how he has like 10 good songs and like mm-hmm. out of his entire discography and it's like dude he has like 500 bad songs so it's like yeah I could see how he'd be like okay this is a pass on this guy like and he also has to travel out to Spawn Ranch, which is, like, way out of the way from L.A. I believe it took, like, 30 or 40 minutes. Last know? last episode, we were going to have that <laughs> Rico the Rockstar guy. <laughs> you didn't make it on here, but how many good songs do you think that guy has? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but, but was this guy taking, uh, like, participating in Manson's girls? Yes. Okay, that's, so that's why he felt, oh, okay. Yeah, that's why he felt indebted to him because he was having, he had a girlfriend who was Candace Bergen, who was kind of a dime piece. That's a super common theme though. Mm-hmm. Like once you do something kind of messed up sexually and mm-hmm. people, and somebody knows about it, you're kind of indebted to them. Oh yeah. It's the Epstein, the whole it's like the Epstein stuff. Exactly. That's what we are talking about last time. <laughs> and I feel like it gets more and more like messed up. Like it used to be, if you had an affair on your wife, that was like a big thing and then that became normal and then it used to be if you were like any type of like like gay anyway Mm -hmm. that was kind of weird and now it's like epstein shit like yeah child sex slaves on an island yep and um his mother um doris day i don't know if you know you guys know who she is she's very like um establishment you know we were talking about very um you know that, that that you know stereotypical like this is this is how we are this is what we do you know her music you know reflected that as well so in in that same vein yeah Terry Melcher might have you know been the producer for you know a lot of these counterculture bands however he was still within that mindset mm-hmm, as well mm-hmm. so that was a big deal for him as well like he had this dying piece of a girlfriend um, you know Candace Bergen. But he's over here messing around with hippie girls, yeah. you know, dealing with dirty catching folk. chlamydia and shit. Yeah, catching yeah. the clap. And so this is how he basically got Terry Melcher to come out to the ranch. But the first time that this happened, like Art was alluding to, um, Manson had the girls um, clean up the ranch. 
He made them, you know, actually go buy groceries from Ralph's, you know, as opposed to dumpster diving, made uh, made him bake brownies um, so he can have something sweet to eat when he got there. Um, it put on this big, you know, practice this big old production and whatnot where they would come out and go-go dance and whatnot. And just like a hot girl, he ghosted Manson. He did a no-show on him. And so he gave him the don't call me, I'll call you kind of thing. No, he didn't even do that. Like, he totally just didn't even go, um, uh, show up to the ranch or anything at all. And I thought he did go. He just like, okay, Eventually cool. he would later on. But, you know, the first time, this and this is another thing after the whole Dennis Wilson thing, this was another thing that was like, man, fucking God damn it, man. These motherfuckers in Hollywood are playing me. And so later on that night, thinking, okay, he knew where um, Terry lived at, at uh, that, you know, Cielo Drive address. Him and Tex um, drove up to the Cielo house, and they went, you know, looking for Terry Melcher at that home. Now, at this time, uh, Terry Melcher had moved out of that home with Candace Bergen, and he was living in Malibu with his mother, Doris Day. Again, taking care of her affairs and whatnot, and, you know, her career and her health and, and all that. And the people who moved into this house was up-and-coming director Roman Kaplansky. Oh, yeah. And his wife, uh, Sharon Tate. Another shady dude. Oh. That guy's <laughs> shady as shit. Yeah. So Manson, you know, knocks on the door, you know, looking for Terry. <coughs> and a photographer who had been, you know, photographing uh, Sharon Tate, who when you look at pictures of her, she's a super attractive woman, you know, like timeless beauty here. So she's also, you know, an up-and-coming actress, and she's also, you know, a supermodel at this time. She's basically, who's, who would that be in today's terms? Um, probably, um, I don't know. That's a good I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I, I want to say, like, a Kardashian or something, but I know that's, that's it, she's, oh, she was more oh, than with no talent. Probably. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who's young. Uh, who's the girl that played... <laughs> the girl from I have no idea. I don't know, but just think of, you yeah. know, a girl that, you know, this is multifaceted. You know, she's an up and coming actress. Um she's also, you know, just really attractive. You know, she's always, you know, in these 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 covers. She she's got a lot of potential basically. Mm-hmm. She's America's she's becoming Amer- becoming America's sweetheart. Like Selena basically, you know, for, for white folks, yeah. I guess you could say. White people love Selena now. No, I'm talking about the white folks version <laughs> of Selena. Oh yeah. Okay. So anyways, <laughs> he knocks at the door. The photographer opens it up and be like, hey, no, I'm sorry. This is the Polanski residence. They no longer live here anymore. And he goes, are you sure, man? Because I'd, I've dropped off Terry here multiple times. I've been here, man. And Sharon, you know, um, comes, you know, to the door and is like, who's that? And he goes, you know what? I, I don't know who this is, but you might want to check with, you know, the guy in the back who actually owns this home. I believe his name was Arthur um, Artabelli or whatnot. And so Manson goes to the back room and he talks to the actual owner of the house and he goes, hey, man, where's Terry at, man? He was supposed to come to my ranch. He was supposed to record me, man. Like, where's he at, bro? And the guy's like, dude, he moved like like months ago. Like he moved out to Malibu and he didn't give him the specific address because he thought it was a little sketchy. And you're not just going to give some random stranger, you know, one of your buddies, you know, new address, you know. I don't care how free love you Not are. Not even phone number, yeah. No. He goes, yeah, man, he's out in Malibu now, man. Like, he, he doesn't live here anymore. And he goes, and I would appreciate it, like, if you don't mess with my residence right now because, I mean, hey, like, you have no business being here. And so eventually, you know, he scares off, uh, you know, Manson and tells him, like, hey, you got to go or I'm going to call the cops. So Manson takes off, and he's pissed, and he's trying, desperately trying to find Terry Melcher. And so eventually he gets a hold of Terry, and Terry's like, you know what? I'm sorry, man. It totally slipped my mind. 
I'll come back out there. Again, Terry comes out. They put on this whole production and whatnot. And Manson's just like, hey, so what's going on? Like, he has like a private powwow with him. He's like, so what do you think, man? Am I the next Beatles or what? And he's basically gives Manson that, you know, whole thing. Like, you know what? <sighs> Don't call me. I'll call you. Um, but he felt bad for Manson because I guess Manson was talking about how, you know, he adopts all these orphan kids, man, and we feed them food like straight out of the dumpster, man. It's the greatest thing ever. And Terry felt really bad, and he was just like, you know what? Here's $50, and here's the name $50. of $50. Is, is that all Manson had on him was like the, the sex stuff? That's it? He put up with that much shit just for that? I think drugs, like, too. Oh, yeah? Because he had, you know, connects, you know, that, you know, supplied drugs to, oh. in exchange for the women. So he, because at this time, too, he's also supplying drugs to, you know, biker gangs and whatnot. Uh, but Terry feels bad, gives Manson $50 to buy some real food <laughs> for the fucking orphan kids. And he says, you know what? I have a friend, you know, he has a recording studio in his van. Maybe I might send him out here to record some shit. So eventually, I guess a couple of days later, that friend in the van comes out. Manson guilts Terry Melcher to come out, you know, to the ranch again. And he says, you know, hey, let's record together. But before we record, let's do some acid, man. Yeah, 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 of course. And so the actual guy that owned the van that was going to be doing all the recording and mixing and whatnot for these, you know, janky demos, basically, he's never done acid before. And Manson's freaking him the fuck out. And he's going crazy he's like oh my god manson is a fucking devil like what the hell and he lunges at manson because man i gotta kill the devil yeah. lunges at him <laughs> with a pitchfork and then they get into a scuffle and then this riles up you know some of the you know old cowboy ranch hands that are on the ranch and then manson gets in a fight with um one of the ranch hands who would play a part <laughs> later on in the story as well i believe it was uh shorty shea is his name and you know they get into a fight and basically terry melcher is like you know what i don't got time for this shit I'm peacing out, man. Like, don't don't even call me, dude. Like, th this we're done here. Like, there's no record deal. There's no demo. Like, like don't call me ever again, dude. We're we're done. It basically gives him the Dennis Wilson treatment. Like, I did everything I could do for you, but hey, I'm sorry. Like, I'm gonna go back to my dime piece girlfriend. Don't fucking guilt me with you know these hippie hoochie mamas yeah, over yeah. here. What? <laughs> I'm just listening. I don't... Anyway. The, the guy couldn't. The guy couldn't kill Manson with a pitchfork. That's pretty. He well, must have been really messed up. He on must that, have been so. on number though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. But not only that though, Manson. <laughs> you know, he would do that. He would, you know, give somebody a full dose of LSD, yeah. and then, like Art said, maybe not even do it at all. And so that's he was probably in his right mind. Yeah. yeah. So it's very possible. So it's at this time where Manson. This is like his final straw. He's like, you know what? Fuck all of this. You know what I'm saying? I'm tired of this town. Tired of being taken advantage of. I'm tired of society fucking with me. And so him and Tex are basically talking. He goes, you know what? We need to start Helter Skelter. Like, you know, nothing's happening with us. We need to get this off the ground. And at the same time, a lot of the girls are, like, losing faith in Manson. Like, okay, I thought this was supposed to be in the prophecy. I thought you were God. You know, God doesn't get rejected. You know, everything was supposed to you know, work out, you were supposed to get this album made and you were, were supposed to change the world. And it seemed like the opposite was happening. So a lot of people were losing faith. So you would see people defect out of the group, go to, you know, rival cult or whatnot. That, that's like typical hateful shit too. Like when you're all frustrated and so you just want to take it, like you wanted to start a race war, mm -hmm. but he's just frustrated at how shitty his life is. Yeah. That's like typical hateful. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. 
Yeah. Like anything will Any, do at this point. Yeah. Like anything is, is somebody's yeah. fault. Yeah. And so he's talking to Tex. He's like, okay, we need, we need to show Blackie how to do this basically. And so he's also losing, like I said, losing faith with the girls. They don't have any money. They don't have anything. You know, George Spawn, he's like saying too, he's like, hey, you guys might have to leave the ranch. You guys are causing too many problems. There's, you know, too, too much, too much bad shit that's going on here that, you know, you're, you might be, you know, cleaning up the ranch and running the horse riding business for me, but you know, it's just too much for me. And so they're starting to find, you know, alternate, you know, bases, you know, there's um, Barker ranch out in death Valley that they are looking at. And then another um, ranch in death Valley. I don't know. Um, I didn't, this out. is like deep dive Manson. Yeah. <laughs> How far is Death Valley from there? How far is Death Valley from LA? I, or it's kind of far. No? From where they're at, I believe it was like 120 miles. Mm. So um, at that that point, like I said, they're running out of food. They're running out of money. And so what they start doing is like, well, we need to start collecting our debts from, you know, everybody in the industry that, you know, has done us wrong. And basically kind of does like he did to Terry Melcher where he's just like saying, hey, man, I let you sleep with some of my my hottest women. I gave you some drugs, man. You need to get me some stuff. You need to get something for me, man. I need some money. And so as I was talking about earlier with the spiral staircase, uh, Gary Hinman, you know, that music teacher, you know, who's trying to start a mescaline business, mm-hmm. um, he told Tex, he goes, man, I heard um, I heard he had inherited a $20,000 inheritance. I want you to go over there and persuade him to get, you know, that inheritance from me. And then Bobby Boussoulet, who... Um, Bobby Boucher. Boucher. <laughs> <laughs> he um, used to be, I guess, a roommate of uh, Gary Hinman. And he said, you know, hey, you know, I'll go over there. You know, let me bring Susan. And I believe um, Patricia Krenwickel, um, you know, I'll take them over there as well. And so while they're doing this, um, Manson... Uh, is telling him like, hey, just take anything you can, you know, take any any possessions or whatever because you know we got to get this money. And so, Bobby's you know talking to Gary Hinman, and Gary Hinman is just like, look, dude, I don't have any money, you know, all of this stuff that I have that you're seeing, like the cars, the house, and whatnot, it's all rented, you know. This is just yeah. basically a, a front, <laughs> basically. And so they don't believe him, and so they call Manson and say, hey, man, there's nothing here for us. And he goes, you know what? Let me show you how to do it. And so the story goes, Manson shows up at Gary Hinman's house and slices him across the face, cutting off his ear and cutting his cheek and then telling Bobby Boussoulet, you know what to do, and then leaves. And so Bobby Boussoulet and and then Susan Susan Atkins and Mary Brenner torture him for a couple of days. And Gary Hinman is just like, look, man, just take me to the hospital. Like, and, Gary, and Bobby's like, no, man, you're going to snitch on me. I know you. I lived with you. I know what's going to happen. I can't go to jail because as soon as you snitch on us, you're going to snitch on Charlie, and then we're all going to go to jail. And then Helter Skelter can't basically get, um, you know, implemented. So he has Susan, you know, stitch up his ear with dental floss. And he's basically saying, like, dude, come on, man, just take me to fucking, you know, the hospital. Like, I promise I won't snitch on you. And he's like, you know what? I don't believe you. And I guess they get into a scuffle. And then Bobby Boussoulet just stabs him twice in his chest and kills Gary Hinman. So that was the first murder? Like, so the that first, was the uh, first Manson murder? Yeah. Okay. That was the first official Manson murder or Manson family murder. Mm. So Gary or Bobby Boussoulet, he's later picked up. 
um, by the police um, because he also steals Gary Hemden's uh, rented Fiat um, down the road as he falls asleep in the front seat and the murder weapon is found in the tire well. So he's in he's in jail. Word gets back to Spawn Ranch that, oh, shoot, Bobby's in jail. We're all in trouble now because if they catch Bobby, they're going to eventually catch us all. And so Manson, you know, is headstrong. He's like, man, we still need, we need, we don't have enough money to get out to, you know, Death Valley. And so what he does is he goes and he shakes down um, a drug dealer that text defrauded uh, called Bernard Crow, a.k.a. Lots of Papa. <laughs> and uh, Manson thought he was actually a Black Panther. And then they get into a scuffle over like, hey, man, like you, you owe us money. And so what Manson does is shoots him in the chest and leaves the scene for Manson um, shot him. Manson okay. shot him. And he doesn't die, right? No. Manson thinks he dies is because later on on the news, I guess the next day or later on that night, they see in L.A. that uh, the body of a Black Panther had been dumped into a dumpster. And then in Manson's mind and in the family's mind, Helter Skelter has been mm -hmm. implemented. That's also the only like, uh, like black casualty of the whole thing, right? Everybody else was white. That they pretty killed. much, yeah. yeah, or Polish. Yeah, I mean, like some, <laughs> a lot like, of Polish like, like, people. White, in yeah, that. yeah. So um, the the Manson family think that oh, okay, they, they start to get rejuvenated again, and so Helter yeah. Skelter gets kind of amplified at this point because Manson's saying, hey. Now fucking the Black Panthers are going to rise up because they're going to want, you know, revenge. Now they don't. For I, some I, random drug dealer. Yeah, yeah, some random drug dealer who didn't end up being actually a fucking Black Panther. Yeah. I don't know where Manson got this idea from. Maybe all black people yeah, were yeah. Black Panthers at this time. <laughs> but uh, Manson thought, okay. He was just super racist to begin with. Oh, so. yeah. Even in interviews later on, like you mentioned, like the Diane Sawyer interview, he was uh -huh. just a fucking racist-ass redneck. Yeah, when did the X on his forehead change into a swastika? Uh, they all had X's think, for a while. Yeah, and then, I think it's actually when he goes into prison. Mm, mm -hmm. So that's more of a prison thing later on. But yeah, I mean, at this point, I, one of the one of the girls you haven't talked about is um, Linda Casaban or something Kasabian? like that. Kasabian? Kasabian? Yeah, like she, she's an interesting character altogether because she becomes a key witness later on. But I'm just stalling because it looks like Jacob's looking for something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um She's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, but th th this is the what rejuve. This is the the turning point that rejuvenates the family. Because, like I said, you know, a lot of people were um, leaving the the family and defecting because they were starting to see like, oh, this guy is just a, a fucking fraud. And so Manson is like, okay, we got to ramp this up. We need to get this going even more. So we need to show Blackie, you know, what's 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 what right now. Because I believe all this happened in July of. Um, 1969 so a month goes by and there's no race war and so manson's like you know what fuck it we got to amp this up yeah are they waiting for the for like the black panthers to start it or what yeah oh, okay they're waiting for like an offensive from them as a retaliation mm -hmm. for the, oh, okay, okay and at this time too like you were saying like was this ever a military base manson basically turns spawn ranch into a military oh, okay. base where he starts having you know night watchmen and snipers hide out <laughs> they the have guns and shit Oh yeah. oh yeah, they're fucking petty thefts, dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, they fucking steal cars. They steal weapons. They that's how they got all their property, basically. But on August eighth, now this is not what you're thinking. Mary Bruner and another female associate of the Manson family, they um, tried to use stolen credit cards, I believe, at a Macy's, and get busted for it. Now Manson pissed off. Th now Mary Bruner, that's this was his first girl. 
and he's thinking like oh shit like i you know they've taken everything from me they've taken bobby they've taken mary and so i gotta do something we got we gotta really ramp this up so he takes tech society and he says you know what i want you to go to that house where terry used to live and i want you to slaughter everybody inside and i want you to take susan linda and patricia krenwinkel with you and then he takes the three girls susan linda kasabian which art was talking about and i believe linda is at this point she had just been in the manson family for about a month so she was like the newest member basically yeah. so this was like her um her hazing basically mm, like, initiation yeah her initiation and so Manson's, manson said to the three girls i want you to totally destroy everyone make it as gruesome as you can and then do something witchy and then do everything that text tells you to do Mm-hmm. And then later on, the girls on trial, they would say like, oh, we didn't know what we were going to do there. You know, we, we were just told just to follow text and do whatever you did. But later accounts would say, oh, no, he told them to slaughter everybody inside. Why was text so susceptible like to the brainwash? You know, later on, text would kind of turn around and like talk about how he kind of hated Manson. Manson was just like a manip- manipulator and all these things, you know, during his prison interviews. But. I don't know why yeah, Tex like, was. What is it Tex, in his personality? He seemed kind of like a strong dude. Tex was kind of like a big guy. Yeah. You know, he was a bigger guy. Manson's five foot nothing. And yeah. and he, he was like a better looking guy. Yeah, like he's like, wrangling bulls and shit. And yet this little dude can get in his head. Yeah. I don't get it. And he was I also like it. a star football player in Texas as well. Mm-hmm. Like stereotypical yeah, Texas yeah, boy. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah that, um, I don't know why. That's a good question. I think that's like one of the things. He can, he can just get ordered around. I mean. And again, it's it goes back to that mind control. Yeah, you know, you know he's dosing people daily. You know, with um, with acid. Yeah, I thought that was weird. The exercises, like the mind control exercises he did with the faces and the hand mirroring, like he would get them to mirror him. I wonder if that's like small scale. Uh, like I don't know when you want to teach a dog something, you teach him to sit first. Mm-hmm. You don't teach him like backflips or whatever first. So maybe the whole mirroring, the yeah. the, the faces and stuff are the first steps of like. Hey, go kill somebody for me. Maybe. Maybe he had, maybe he was more thought out, you know? Maybe Everything I think step that. by step. And then maybe like, it's like boiling a frog. Like he doesn't know, you know, he's fucking dying. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, I mean, maybe it's one of those You don't things. know he's turning you into a murderer. Yeah, and he's slowly. molding your mind, yeah. basically. And I think too, a lot of, a lot of it has to do with, it's just like this, he's, he was a young dude. I believe he was only 21 years old. And he had dreams of also making it. I believe he was like a baggage handler, you know, when Manson met, you know, Tex. Mm. And, you know, that's no kind of life, you know. Like, <laughs> you're you're basically, you're earning minimum wage in a city that's, again, expensive as shit. And here's a guy that's offering, you know, free, you know, food, free women and free drugs. So it's just like, I could see how a young man full of testosterone would just be like, oh, you mean I could fuck anybody I want? Yep. And then I'm glad you said this, too, because uh, one of the things I saw... It was a Fox um, show that's on Hulu right now where it was like the lost tapes or whatnot. But um, a couple of the guys, I believe it was Paul Watkins, said that what he would do with the guys is he would make the guys have sex with the other guys um, and tell them, you know, whatever he had to tell them to do it. But basically he would, he would Epstein them and be like. I was wondering that. I'm glad you said that. I did. I wasn't aware of that, but I was wondering that where it's like what like what could you do to really have something on them mm-hmm. like if they weren't gay and you made them do gay shit that would probably that would be like a big and it was all documented to, too yeah. because there there's tapes these that's what the, the whole documentary was based on it's the lost tapes and you would see you know like, you watch these tapes i didn't watch them they didn't kidding. show those <laughs> portions you know what that reminds me like skull and bones type of things where like 
you you familiar with skull and bones? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like they have them like masturbate in a coffin or something. Yeah. And it's like now he helps them like super embarrassing thing. Yeah, man. To like hold them, like cost you know. Yeah, and it just gets worse and worse. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, so that's probably why Tex was such a loyal soldier um, mm-hmm. up until you know they get to Death Valley. But anyways, I guess earlier on in that day too, um, Susan Atkins and Tex Watson they were fried out on acid themselves. I guess they when Manson found them, they were out in the middle of the, of nowhere, you know, laying basically tripping balls, <laughs> you know. And I guess they said it was. It made me laugh. The name of this, like they were smoking what's called belladonna. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I had no idea what that is. And if you Google Belladonna, you'll probably get something else uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> in your Google. Belladonna. Yeah, I'm afraid now uh-huh. to Google it. Uh, well, all right, do some research. If you're if you're if you're a straight guy, you'll probably Belladonna? like it. But if you're a, <laughs> a female listener, you may or may not like what you see. But just it, you're going to see a lot of gaping holes. But <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> But um, basically, it's another form of psychedelia, so or acid or whatnot. So they were smoking belladonna, and they were just totally tripped out. But they were also doing speed in conjunction with it as well. So like they were on an upper and a down. Th- th- that's same something time. I heard about the the hippie movement was uh, the escalation of the drugs. It pretty much ended in speed. That was like the last uh, mm-hmm. the last chapter of the hippie drugs, which is the weird top level. Because, like, I drink a bang, and I feel like I'm like a hummingbird. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then speed, I mean, that's some fucking next-level shit. (laughs) So, which probably plays into what happens next. So, um, Tex and the girls drive out to, you know, 150, you know, Cielo Drive. Uh, They park the car at the bottom of the hill. Tex climbs the, the phone pole and cuts the phone wires. So, you know, hey, nobody can call 911. Even people within the area. So I guess they um, there, there's a website um, called CieloDrive.com, and they have like all like the police photos and whatnot the, of the next day. Um, it's like some rotten.com shit. But then the, what I thought was more interesting, other than the gore, was like they show the actual telephone pole that Tex uh, ran up, and he cut all of the telephone lines. So it, it's a pretty smart move on his yeah. point. Like nobody's gonna be able to call you know the police. You know they're not gonna be able to show up until you know whenever that shit gets fixed, you know, by MCI or Sprint or whoever their phone carrier is at that time. Mm-hmm. And so Tex, you know, he goes it has up. to be like AT&T. Maybe. Just thinking. Just thinking. You know, know what AT&T stands for? What? American Telegraph. Telephone, telephone and Telegraph. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it was Pacific Bell. Remember that? Pac Bell, yeah. Pac Bell, yeah, there you go. Um, so <clears throat> he climbs the, um, the, the bushes on the side of the gate. Uh, because they all thought that, you know, the gate was electrified or it had some kind of security device. Because Cielo Drive is it's in a fucking nice neighborhood. And so they they jump over the bush. And then Tex immediately sees a car coming down. Now, it's Steve Parent's car. Now, Steve Parent is an 18-year-old um, kid who, I guess he worked, like, in a radio shop. And he was showing the gardener, basically, a clock radio that, you know, he was trying to sell them. I don't know what he was doing there at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. Because this was like later on in the, <laughs> in the night. Was in this the summertime? Summertime, yes. Yeah, it's eight o'clock, seven o'clock. Seven o'clock's like not that late. Like you know the sun's I, still out. You know what? I take that back because I think it was like later on in the night, like ten o'clock. Because I believe uh, Sharon and the house guests 
were eating at some Mexican restaurant earlier in the night. So I believe it was like probably like 10 or 11 mm-hmm. o'clock. So I don't know what this 18-year-old d- dude was doing, <laughs> you know, at the gardener's section of the house or whatever. But he was trying to, the story goes as he was trying to sell him a cro- mm-hmm. clock radio. Maybe he was trying to sell him some cock too. Yeah. I don't know, but I ain't going to judge. But anyways, Steve's coming down the gate right as Tex and the girls are jumping over the um, the fence to, to get to the house. Um, Steve parent is like, Hey, what's, what's going on? And Tex immediately slashes his hand, basically slashing every tendon in the palm of his hand and shoots him two times in the chest, leaving him for dead. Uh, Tex then enters in through the side of the house and finds a uh, window open and it's only, you know, stopped by a screen. He cuts the screen, goes into the house and opens up the front door for the girls to, you know, come through. But at this point, he tells um, Linda Kasabian, hey, you're going to be the lookout. Make sure nobody, you know, comes in or out. And then just let us know if something goes on. So immediately when he's telling her this, um, Wycheck Frykowski, who was a friend of Roman Polanski and the boyfriend of Abigail Folger, who are house guests at this time, wakes up off the couch that he was sleeping at and asks um, Tex, why are you here and who are you? And then Tex says, you know, per his trial, that I am the devil and I am the, here to do the devil's work. Fucking nuts. Yeah. So it's at that point that um, Tex kicks him in the head and then I believe he stabs him a couple of times. And this is when um, Susan and then Patricia, they go and they find the other, you know, three people in the house, which was, you know, Sharon Tate. Abigail Folger, who was um, the heiress to the, the Folger family, the coffee company. Yeah. And then Jay Sebring. And how pregnant was Sharon Tate at this time? Because I don't know if we've talked about this, but Sharon Tate was pregnant. Yeah. She was eight and a half months pregnant. Yeah, she was like full on pregnant. She's getting like chased around the, around her own home. Mm-hmm. And then also um, her ex-boyfriend, uh, Jay Sebring, who was <coughs> a house guest there as well. Now, Jay, he's kind of interesting as well because not only is he the ex-boyfriend and he's kind of living at (laughs) the house um, of his ex-girlfriend and, you know, the guy that basically took his girlfriend away from Mm -hmm. her, but he was also um, the guy that made men's hairstyles fashionable where it was more than just like, hey, I'm going to get a buzz cut. Like, he, it was actually like he was the one that came over and, um, you know, like a male salon, basically. Oh. It was a little step. It was a step up from a barber shop. That's pretty genius. Um, and he was also the guy that brought over hair dryers to America as well, because I guess he was a, a barber in the Korean War. And um, you know, guys aren't gonna go into a you know a salon or whatnot, and if you have to put like those <laughs> hair dryers or whatnot yeah. on them. So he was the one that brought to America the actual like you know that I'm sure every each one of your girlfriends has those hair dryers. So. He was a big deal, like, in the hair care industry Dang, as well. That's pretty genius, though. Yeah, so he was a big deal. But he was also Sharon Tate's ex-lover. <laughs> it's crazy. And so, anyways, uh, Susan Atkins and Patricia Kringwinkle gather those other three people in them to the living room. And um, they tie Jay and Sharon up by the neck and throw the rope over a beam. And then um, what Patricia Krenwickel does is that it takes Abigail Folger back to her bedroom to get all the money in the house. Now, I guess the money wasn't there in the house, and the only money that was there was in Abigail Folger's purse, which was only about $75. 
And so this enraged Tex, who uh, started beating uh, Jay and uh, Abigail and, um, and, and Sharon. Now, Jay was starting to be like, hey, dude, stop fucking with her. She's, she's eight and a half months pregnant. Can, like, just, like, can we, like, do something else? Like, what do we need? We can take you guys somewhere else to get money. Like, what, what is this about? And he goes, you don't understand. You guys are all going to die. This isn't just a robbery. Did they have guns? Uh, texted. Yeah, oh, okay. He was the only one with a gun? Yeah, he was the only one with a gun. Oh, okay. Uh, everybody else had, like, buck knives or bayonets, I want to say. So, bayonets? Yeah, they had bayonets. Like, the, the blade off of the bayonet. Oh. And so, <clears throat> Jay gets um, stabbed, I guess, about 16 times and gets, you know, kicked down into the um, the ground. But at the same time, Wycheck Frykowski the boyfriend of Abigail Folger, he's being tied up by Patricia Krenwinkel with a towel, bathroom towel. And he starts to um, fight off Patricia Krenwinkel, and he starts he starts to make a run for the door. Now, as he ma- he's making a run for the door, uh, Tex catches up with him, because obviously he's a Texas fucking football player, <laughs> and starts beating him over the head with the butt of his gun, cracking open the, the wood, uh-huh. I guess the wood casing that would be like on the handle of the gun, breaking that in half, and then shooting him twice in the back. And then Abigail tries to make a run for it, and she runs out uh, into the pool area, into the front yard, and this is where Patricia Krenrickle tackles her to the ground and starts stabbing her, and I believe she stabbed her... It shows 16 times. And then as she's stabbing her, she's she can tell, you know, she's losing her life. And, you know, the famous... Um, uh, Diane Sawyer interview with um, Patricia Krenwinkel. She says that as I'm stabbing her, she's looking up at me saying, I'm already dead. Like, I'm already dead. Stop stabbing me. Like, and Rob yeah, Zombie. I, said, too. I was wondering, like, like how they can tell it was 16 times and not 17 or 15. After I, a while, isn't it just like. I guess. Like, sh- yeah. I guess they um, count like all the coroner oh, counts like all the fucking stab wounds. Yeah, I'm sure they. Terrible job. Yeah, so at this point, you know, half of the house is dead. Tex, um, you know, he's he's talking to, to Sharon Tate and whatnot, and she's begging for her life. Um, and this is where it kind of gets convoluted, where it's like, is it Tex that actually killed, you know, Sharon Tate, or was it Susan Atkins? But um, I guess later on, Tex said, you know, Susan didn't have anything to do with it, but then Susan testified that, you know, you know, Susan or Sharon Tate was, you know, begging for her life, like, hey, just let me live long enough for my baby to be born. And, you know, I'll give you whatever you want. You know, I'll be your slave or I'll get you, you know, whatever millions of dollars you have. My husband's over in Rome filming, uh, filming a movie. Like, we'll get you whatever you want. Just let my baby be born. And I guess Susan said that she got sick of her tying, sick of her crying and stabbed, kept stabbing her in the gut and stabbing yeah. her in the belly. And as she was doing that, blood would, you know, spurt into her mouth. And she said that she loved the taste of it. And it was basically kind of like she still the line here from Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was better than coming. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like the pump. Yeah, <laughs> but um. Anyways, um, they they go back uh, to Spawn Ranch, and they tell you know Manson, you know what had happened. They tell him, hey, you know we took the towel that we used to tie up one of the guys, and we wrote pig, and um, you know we made it a brutal, bloody scene and whatnot. Yeah, what was the pig? What was writing pig? What does that even mean? So I guess with pig, obviously it was a reference to the Beatles yeah. song. But also, too, it made it look like the Black Panthers had been there. Oh, I because see. you know, they stri- even draw. They drew like a little paw. Yeah, like they a did. Black Panther paw. Yeah, and 
I guess like when you, you look at like old tapes of like the Black Panthers, like they would call police officers oh, okay. pigs. Because oh, okay. even out, also too at the uh, Gary Hinman murder scene, they drew like um, a paw print as well, like a bloody mm-hmm. paw print, which was supposed the to fist rep- or what? Like the Black Panther fist? No, it was what? like a cat paw. Oh, okay. cat paw. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're representing like, you like know Black Panther. Pat Panther. Oh. Yeah, and. Um, I believe, like in his house as well, they put like political piggy on there. Mm-hmm. So they were basically they were looking at it from two angles, where it was like, "Hey, this is helter skelter," but we also want to divert attention from our quote unquote brother that's in jail, saying like, "Hey, he's not the real killer of Gary Hinman," because obviously these killings are still happening. Yeah, you know, and and at the, the time, thing. the police were looking at the murders as like separate things, right? Like copycat crimes. They Correct. Didn't, they didn't attribute. They never yeah. acknowledged for a while. They never acknowledged that this was. It could all be the same group. The same group, yeah. yeah. Like, which is nuts to think about. Yeah, I, I don't get it. So Manson was pissed off because I guess um, all they got was the seventy dollars. Like he didn't care more or less about the murder. Like he was just like, "What? That's all you got was seventy dollars." Mm-hmm. And according to Manson, he went back there and like rearranged everything. But like when you look at it, like there's no way like they went back, you know, within this time frame, and you know gussied up the scene and whatnot everything was pretty much like hey yeah like <laughs> what, what would happen happen until like they late they later on found why it. did he say he went back and rearranged it what would be the purpose of that i so, guess because he wanted more attention to be um on the fact that it looked like the black panther oh did. okay more, more okay yeah because i guess um susan atkins she wrote pig on the front door but he wanted more shit. Like he mm. wanted more witchy shit. To, but I don't know how you get more witchy than that. Down with Whitey. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess this didn't satisfy Manson. So the next night, um, he drives the family with Leslie Van Houten, Steve Clem Grogan, Tex Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian, and Patricia Krenwinkle. And I'm going to show you how to properly do this. So what they did is they drove to the house of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. Now, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, I guess you could say they were upper middle class. They weren't rich like Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, but they were upper middle class. You know, they lived. when you look at the actual house on Waverly Drive, it's a really nice house. It's like one of those houses you would see like on Panorama or close to the Bakersfield Country Club. Um, and what they did is, is they broke into the house while Lino was sleeping on uh, – the armchair and um woke him up and tied him up and you know basically said that hey this is a robbery you don't have to you know f- worry about your life like we're not going to do anything to harm you it's just we're looking for you know money basically so just hand it over and nothing will happen and then what happens is is uh, manson goes back to the car where the girls were at because it was just him and text that broke in and he tells them he goes i want you to slaughter everybody inside so the girls go in, they take uh, Rosemary's wallet, and he gives it to um, Linda Kasabian and says, hey, I want you to dump it in an area, and I want you to, uh, a black area, so that way the black mm. people, they they find this wallet and they use the credit cards inside. Why did they pick this house? I, so that's an interesting thing, too, because I guess the theory goes as well, is that next door, um Manson had been to a party there with some in, some industry insider. Oh, okay, I think I remember that. Yeah. Okay, so he yeah. knows the area mm-hmm. a little bit. So I think that's why they wanted that area. But basically, again, it's a bloody crime scene. There's no need to, you know, overindulge into it, but um, you know, they brutalized both um Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. 
they write um, Hilter Skelter on the fridge. You know, they write death to all pigs on the on the walls in their blood. And then they stick a, you know, a fork in um, Lino Kasabian's yeah. uh, abdomen and then carve war into his uh, forehead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's it's rough to talk about. Um, but I guess it didn't stop there because I guess Manson, he drove out everybody down to Venice Beach and he says, we, we need to do one more killing because we need to make sure that the this war pops off. And so he takes... Um, uh, Linda Kasabian, because at this time she's the only one that hasn't done anything. Leslie Van Houten, you know, she st- she stabbed, um, you know, Rosemary LaBianca, I guess, 14 times. Linda Krenwinkel, at this time, she's killed like four or five people. You know, she said that she stabbed Rosemary so many times that, you know, she was no longer bleeding, you know, by the time she stopped um, stabbing her. And then Linda was the only one that hadn't done anything yet. And um, Manson told uh, Tex to make sure that everybody does something. And so he drives everybody out to Venice and says, hey, I want you to, you know, kill somebody. And then Linda says, oh, there's this guy, uh, this actor guy, this Middle Eastern actor guy. And um, he did me wrong one time. Let's go kill him. And so I guess the story goes is Linda goes and she leaves the car. She runs up to the door with uh, Susan Atkins and um, she gets scared and she she purposely knocks on the wrong door and nobody answers. And so they run off. And then Susan, I guess, like takes a dump in front of that door and they run off. And at this time, Manson had <laughs> totally prank or something, junior high prank. Or yeah. And at this time, Manson just left the girls there and said, hey, you got to hitchhike back to Spawn Ranch. You disappointed daddy. <laughs> yeah. So um, I guess at this point, um, this is where um, they're seeing it on TV, where this is huge news, um, more so with the Tate um, murder. Uh, because it's all over the news a lot of celebrities are starting to freak out this is where you see a boom like in home security yeah, and buying guns right there was a huge boom in buying guns buying guns yeah. i think one gun store they said that you know they s- stopped you know they couldn't carry enough yeah. guns um you know guard dogs and security guard services this was the birth of you know gated communities and whatnot um, because everybody was freaking out. Um, Frank Sinatra left town. Yeah, I heard that one too. And um, a lot of other, other celebrities. And one that I thought was uh, fascinating was Steve McQueen. You guys know who Steve McQueen is? Yeah, yeah. He's a badass old actor for sure. Oh, yeah. One, like Bruce Lee's best friend, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was in that badass movie Bullet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess he... Um, <laughs> I can totally see him do this too. I guess Steve McQueen... What he would do is he would drive around with a pistol looking for the yeah, killers. Yeah, like, like in the in the in the passenger seat. There was a story <laughs> I heard about that dude where uh, oh fuck, I don't even know if it's true, but they were saying that some director or something that he didn't like died, and I guess he went to like pick up Bruce Lee and was like, "Hey, dude, like, did you hear this guy's dead? I'm gonna go piss on his grave. You want to come with me?" And Bruce Lee was like, "What the fuck are you talking about? You're <laughs> crazy, dude." Yeah, like he wanted to be a fighter too. Like he wanted. Bruce Lee's job and Bruce Lee wanted his job, you know. Oh, Bruce wow. Lee, yeah, yeah, yeah. But side note, anyway. Crazy. But Steve McQueen was cool, dude. Which is crazy because they both make an appearance in the fucking Once Upon a Time. I haven't seen that yet. Is dude, that good? Oh, dude, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's super long, but like once you get like all of this information, like Quentin Tarantino inserted a lot of fucking Easter eggs into it's pretty this good. movie. There's one spoiler I want to talk about, but I keep forgetting. If you haven't seen it, then it's okay, dude. I'll no. still watch it. Well, it's more of a Quentin Tarantino universe type of thing. Have you seen other Quentin Tarantino movies? Yeah. yeah. Have you seen Death Proof? No. Oh, okay. Well, it ties into Death Proof. Did you get that? 
Oh, with the stunt woman? The stuntman Mike. Oh, yeah, yeah, with yeah. the car? Yeah. Yeah, that's his brother. Oh, yeah. Like Vincent kind of, Vega and what's his name, Vega? Um, Vic Vega and Vincent Vega. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, John Travolta and Michael, <laughs> whatever his name is, or brothers. <sighs> okay, so anyways, this is what's going on in Hollywood at this time. August 12th, the LAPD makes that infamous statement that there is no uh, connection to all of these murders, even though they're writing in blood, and their official explanation is it's copycat. just copycat yeah. murders. And so at the same time, about four days later, um, authorities uh, raid Spawn Ranch, and they re- arrest Manson and 25 others for carjacking. So they basically they uh, Manson and his family had been being watched by L.A. County Sheriff's Office, and basically what they were doing, like I was alluding to, is that, you know, this is how they got all of their guns. This is how they got all their cars. Basically, they would take them to Spawn Ranch and then just dump them there and make doom buggies out of them. Yeah, that's how people get caught, right, is like usually like something dumb and small. Mm-hmm. Now, who was the famous mobster got caught for like tax evasion, right? Instead, oh, like uh, uh, like a pretty oh, fuck. super famous. I'm going to remember it later. But anyway, super famous mobster, and they got him on. Oh, wasn't it um, Teflon Don? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Teflon Don. What the hell is his real name? God damn. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. John Travolta. Speaking of John Travolta, he played him like in a really bad movie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I heard that movie was shit. God damn. Gotti, Gotti. John Gotti. John Gotti. There you go. That's it. (laughs) Anyways, um, they raid Spawn Ranch. They arrest Manson and and 25 others and connection with the carjacking. Now, this is a big relief to them because they think they're being arrested for, you know, the murders. You know, because at this time at Spawn Ranch, you know, there's a lot of whisperings going on. And, you know, Susan, who is like a blabbermouth that we'll find out later on, she's bragging, you know, to the other, you know, you know, family members like, hey, you know, we we did that. That shit that you're seeing on TV right now, we did that. And so a, there was a lot of whispers around uh, Spawn Ranch that was happening. And when they got arrested, they all thought that's what was, you know, they were being arrested for. As it turns out, the warrant for the search of the property was misdated. So L.A. County sheriffs had to release them back. Dang, who's the lawyer that saw that? I don't know. <laughs> you know, like just <laughs> yeah. some regular public defendants. Like, yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Steve. <laughs> and so... At this time, this is where Manson's like, you know what? Like, we're cutting it super close right now. We got to get the hell out of here. And this is where they start to take off to uh, Death Valley. Now, before they take off to Death Valley on August 26th, um, they t- they suspect that Donald Shorty Shea, that guy that you know started that fight with Charles Manson when uh, Terry Melcher was oh yeah, yeah came yeah. to uh, yeah, yeah. to visit. Um, they told Tex Bruce Davis and Manson that we need to pick him up and you know for a ride you know to to get car parts and so basically what happens is is all four of these men are in the car along with shorty shay giving them a ride to the car parts place that they think and in the back seat uh one of the men hits um shorty shay you know in the back of the head and you know knocks him out they take him out into the middle of nowhere off the spawn ranch and start stabbing the shit out of him and shoot him and then start according to manson you know, they cut off, they cut them up into six pieces and bury them. And this also, too, is where Manson says that, you know, he actually killed this person. You know, that we were talked about, hey, you never killed anybody. Yeah. Um, I was listening to um, this podcast I was talking about, it was Manson in his own words. He was the one that said that he gave the final blow to him. Mm-hmm. And then he said that once he didn't see any more blood off of his knife, that's when he stopped stabbing him. 
So they all move out to Barker Ranch in Death Valley. And um, this is also where, Art, you were talking about that Tex, uh, he started to question Manson, um, where he's just, like, starting to wake up a little bit, where he's just like, what am I doing all this for? Um, he's seeing, like, all these girls basically in servitude to them, and they're at in Barker Ranch. They're digging random holes because they're trying to find this hole in the ground that they're going to hide in, you know, before Helter Skelter takes place. And he's seeing that, wow, there's no point to this. Yeah, it, that's th- some I, white people shit, man. I, I, yeah. I, I guess, like, that was, like, the most fascinating thing about all of it to me is, like, uh, the levels of brainwash mm-hmm. and when people break and how, I mean, like, what it takes to brainwash somebody, I guess. You know what I mean? How he just controlled these seemingly normal people. How we talked about how Texas pretty, like, seemed to be, have a good head on his shoulders, and yet it took him a long time. It took him, like, how, how many murders to even realize they were doing anything. Yeah. And a lot of this, too, was under the influence. And yeah. when they're out there in Barker Ranch, you know, a lot of the things started to dry up. Food started to dry up. You know, they're in the middle of Death Valley. There's no Ralphs for them to go dumpster diving in to find food. You know, even a short car trip, you know, they don't have the luxury of, okay, there's this old man that has this house for me that, you know, has a, you know, a business yeah. that can fund all of this. You know, they, they said the cops that came and busted them later on, you know, everybody looked like they were starving. You see that in cults too. Like different people have different breaking points mm-hmm. where they're like, no. Nah. Well, they want to quit the cool. Yeah, they they want to quit. Yeah, yeah, it's like drink the Kool Aid, and like there's always a couple that don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other, yeah. And it, there's no there's no more drugs, so a lot of minds start to get cleared up as well. And so I guess at this time, to speed this up a little bit, Manson d- finds an uh, Earth Mover. I want to say it is like one of those like bulldozers or whatnot, and has the family strip it of parts, and then for some random ass reason, he sets it on fire. Now, this uh, Earth Mover was owned by, you know, the National Park Services. And that National Park Services, you know, you know the, this is a very expensive piece of equipment. They want to know who the fuck is out. First of all, who the fuck is out here in fucking Death Valley, yeah, yeah. first and foremost? And who's the fucking person that did this to our fucking Earth Mover? And so this is where, you know, like you alluded to, a lot of, you know, they, people get busted for dumb shit. And this is where they start to get looked at closely by local authorities um, in Death Valley. So, again... They're being watched by, you know, uh, the local authorities, the LAPD, the the sheriff's department, you know, the national park is looking at them. And they're basically looking at them because they're seeing a lot of crazy ass, you know, VW uh, dune buggies out there. And they're like, how are they getting all of this stuff? And so, again, they get busted for carjacking. I guess it's kind of like... also incompetence on the cops though mm-hmm. like i feel like they let a lot of shit go yeah before they or maybe you just can't arrest people on that little evidence but still man i feel like they let so much like i feel like nowadays if you had a gang of people running around doing that crazy shit you'd get or, or well, actually they were white though so yeah i was thinking <laughs> the same thing i, I guess was they like, have a little if bit these of, people were black and yeah, doing the exact yeah, same yeah, things yeah. they would have been in jail long exactly. ago yeah yeah as soon as they see him digging out in the desert for a bottomless pit, like, you're in jail. The minute they Fuck see em. him walking in, like, Cielo Drive, they're getting arrested. Yeah. Even if they're just there, like, Jehovah Witness style. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so they get booked. And in prison, this is where Susan starts to, you know, fuck everything up for the family. So in her cell, she's talking to um, her cellmates and talking about, you know, the tape murder. I guess the TV had been showing, you know, coverage of that. And she's like, you know who did that? 
we like, did that's that. not how i did it yeah exactly <laughs> starts like you know uh, bragging basically yeah. about that and one of the women is just like you know what this is fucked up you know like at first like she's like why would you even you know i don't like you're a carjacker but why would you even admit to that that lady was pregnant like and these, mind you, these are other prisoners yeah. at this point. Like, I'm, I don't know what the other lady Her did. Her cellmate yeah. just had, like, a joint or something. Yeah. And she's next to this baby killer. So they're not the most, like, you know, pristine people either. But she's like, no, that's fucked up. Why would you even kid around that you would, you know, fucking, you know, say that you murdered a pregnant yeah. woman or whatnot, right? And so she's like, but the more she talked, the more I started to believe her. And she broke, like, I guess, like, the unspoken rule, don't snitch on your cellmates. And so uh, she was telling, like, a couple of the, you know, guards, like, hey, um, you probably want to look in this. That shit that's on the TV right now, we, you guys got her in custody right now. And, again, uh, the authorities were just like, nah, she's just, you know, she's just talking out of her ass. And so kudos to this lady. She uses, like, one of her only phone calls to call the Hollywood fucking police department and says, says hey, um, this is what this lady is telling me. Did she get special treatment for this? Like, was her sentence, like, minimized for this? She should have. Or, or they just locked her back up? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the help. Fuck off. I don't know if she was white or not, so I can't yeah, answer yeah, that yeah, question. True, true. So the Hollywood Police Department was like, well, fuck, yeah, that makes sense. Because if when you look at it, yeah, all the fucking murders, like, have, you know, fucking uh, pig written in blood and whatnot. And so they start to put two and two together. And eventually this is how Manson and his followers got caught for, you know, the the murder for you know Sharon Tate and the Rosemary and Lino LaBianca as well as Gary Hinman. Sure did, man. <laughs> and, and this whole time, this whole time, uh, Polanski was out of the country. Yeah. yeah, he was out of the country. That guy's doing some shady shit, dude. That guy's so he's so lucky. Yeah, I know. like he's still on the run, right? Yeah, for, he's still uh, like living in France or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, he's. Um, I think uh, if he ever like. He's even close to uh, what are they called? An embassy, like a U.S. embassy. Mm-hmm. He's getting snatched up he right was away. The original Epstein. Yeah, basically. Uh, that guy's nuts, dude. Yeah, but anyways, Manson and his followers they go to trial, and that's like where you see like all of that crazy shit, like where Manson you know carves an X into his forehead because he's Xing himself out of fucking society. You see, you know, him shave his head, and then later on, you know, his fo- his they the all girls, shave his head. Then they all put fucking X's in their forehead. And what's interesting about that is, is during like that time, you see like that footage of the girls, you know, being, you know, uh, taken from their cells to, to go to court and they're singing, you know, they're happy. It's like almost like they're being taken to church or whatnot. And I guess somebody what's was... What's Tex doing? Sorry, what's Tex doing right now? Oh, Tex was... Same thing as the rest of them, carving X's in his head? No, actually, he, he, he left um, Death Valley and went back to Texas. Oh, okay. So he's on the run at this point. He's pretty much oh, on the okay. run. And then once, you know, Susan uh, blabs off or whatever, you know, and, set, and implements everybody in the murder, um, you know, authorities are looking for him as well as Patricia Krenwinkel because she also, too, defected out of um, Death Valley. And um, what was interesting, too, what I was talking about is is people were supplying, because it became like uh, pop celebrities, celebrities or whatever, people were supplying them with LSD in the prison, like somehow slipping it to them. So, again... You would have think you would have thought like okay they're in prison you know their minds are clearing up or whatever no people were supplying them with even more they drugs. got more time to trip yeah so yeah. that's why you see them you know walking down the street and whatnot or walking down to you know to the courthouse you know singing and holding hands and being crazy and shit and witchy and whatnot did they have any communication with Manson at the time they did is and that that's how through he, guards or what 
I'm not sure. I guess um, the Bugliosi, the guy, the district attorney that was trying the case, he said that um, he was trying he was trying to do this all within tandem, uh, trying to cover you know the Tate Labianca uh, murders together. Because when you think about it, you have four different individuals um, being put on trial. You have Manson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and uh, Leslie Van Houten. You know, for two different murders here, um, or for seven or eight people or whatnot. But he wanted to try them all at once, so just that way they can get them all, you know, covered. You know, basically he thought this was going to be the domino to get the whole family mm-hmm. going. So, um, Nixon was president at this time, right? Yeah, because a lot of the conspiracy theory YouTube videos were like talking about how Nixon didn't want the truth exposed about their LSD experiments, and like Manson was an LSD experiment gone wrong, and so the trial they really just sensationalized it and made it all about like uh like clear cut and dry murder like lock him up and throw him away so it was nixon yeah he was I because i think during the trial um like when everything is going down uh during the trial uh nixon said that you know he was guilty yeah he like, was already saying yeah like, yeah implementing him that like yeah you have a man here mm-hmm. who had already he had killed eight people and like the trial was like in the midst of the trial and I guess like they, the defense was like saying like, hey, like we demand a mistrial because if the president of the United States is already persuading that the rest of the country, yeah. to, to the rest of the country that, you know, these people are guilty, like, hey, this is not a fair trial. Yeah, that doesn't happen, right? Like ever. Does no. it? The president Unless never... Trump does it, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see Trump doing that. Yeah. That's true. These are bad people. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking bad hombres. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one story I thought was funny because um, I was – kind of trying to just end this story but um i guess when manson got um busted at barker ranch um you know the police officers that came you know they got everybody um out of the kitchen and whatnot and manson was nowhere to be found i guess a lot of the members were saying like hey like you know we all got busted within seconds you know it seemed and manson was right right there in the middle of the the living room and whatnot and then all of a sudden he just disappeared and the only way they found uh, manson was is that there was a little lock of hair hanging out of like this tiny little <laughs> like sink um, in the house, and that when um, the 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 officer like went to open it up, he's like, "Don't make a fucking move, or I'll blow your fucking head off." And I guess a lot of people were asking that officer it was just like, "Well, why didn't you just blow his fucking head off?" It was yeah, Charles yeah. Manson. He goes, "Well, the only thing he said was when I fucking like said that was like, oh hey man." Like, how, am I <laughs> fu- how am I supposed to fucking shoot someone that says that? Man? Like that don't make no sense. But anyways. Sounds like him. Yeah. Man, that's a long episode. I'm sorry. Two hour episode. (laughs) Two two and a half hour episode. There's a lot of shit on this, and I'm probably. Yeah, you knew everything. Not everything. I I thought I knew more than I. Yeah, that was. (laughs) I I glazed over a lot of stuff on this because it was just like, wow, like this could easily be like a four parter. Um, But yeah, Manson, long story short, um, he gets convicted along with the four other women. Um, They did. They were supposed to be sentenced to death, but I guess in 1972, California, you know, reversed the death penalty and, you know, commuted all their sentences to life in prison. I guess later on, you know, California, you know, redacted that because Tookie Williams of the Crips, he got executed. Um, Oh, yeah. What is that? Yeah. So that'd be interesting to find that out. But, um, yeah, they all spent the rest of their life in prison. Susan Atkins, she died in prison of brain cancer. Um, uh, Linda Kasabian or uh, Patricia Patricia Krenwinkel 
She's still in prison. She's been denied for parole, you know, multiple times. Uh, Leslie Van Houten recently, she got approved for parole, but um, the governor, um, Gavin Newsom, he reversed that. And I guess previously, um, Jerry Brown had denied it a couple times as well, too. Because Who I get, approved her? Like the board or whatever yeah, board it is. And what's crazy about that is, is like uh, Patricia Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten, like they're fucking, they have like their doctorate's degree in prison and they're fucking psychologists and whatnot. Shit, they'd probably be good psychologists too. Well, now, yeah, yeah, yeah. knowing both sides yeah. of fucking the shit or whatever. I, I could see them why they would get it. I mean, they were like 23 years old when this is happening, you know? I think um, Leslie Van Houten was only 19. Yeah. And so, then um, Susan, I think, was like in her 20s or whatever, like 26 or something like that crazy but um manson again yeah the crazy thing to wrap this story up with is he spends you know the rest of his life in prison where he's most comfortable he says he, he i guess when he got convicted he said you're not doing anything to me that i'm not already like ready to do because he was at home in prison so basically you put the animal that was comfortable in the cage back in the yeah, cage which is frustrating you can't even punish the guy yeah because he gets yeah. what he wants and um he dies in bakersfield <laughs> and um what's crazy about that is i guess in uh november of 2016 this is or 2017 that's when he dies right but i guess earlier on in the year um it's found out you know he has colon cancer and he has like you know gastro bleeding and whatnot and so they take him to mercy downtown now that's literally like maybe like two minutes away from my job right yeah same yeah and so I'm passing by this, like, because they're making this public knowledge or whatever. And so you see, you know, you know, the CDCR, you know, vans or whatever parked out there. And you see them, like, you know, moving. I'm not trying to say that I saw them transporting Charles Manson or whatever, but I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Down the street from my fucking job, that's where Charles Manson is right now. So fast forward from January of 2017 all the way up to November. Are you, we were fucking talking about this, you know, when this was happening. Um, you know, the media was going crazy because, oh, Charles Manson, you know, is in dire need in Bakersfield right now. Like, he, he's pretty much on his deathbed. And the media was, like, saying, okay, they can't, you know, per his rights, they can't release, you know, what hospital he's at. So I have a friend who's a nurse, and she said that, yeah, he's at KMC right now. And they're getting ready to, they could save his life right now. And I guess they said, you know, they decided, you know, we're not going to operate on him. Like, it's pretty much he's at the end of his line right now. He's like 83 years old. And I asked, I was like, well, out of all the hospitals, why would he go to KMC? And there was like, well, they know he's going to die. And the coroner's office is literally right across the street. So all they're going to do is they're just going to wheel his ass right uh, down to the coroner's office. So It must suck to be the doctor that has to, like, help him. Because as a doctor, when they tell you to operate something, don't, don't you have to? Well, it's his decision. I mean, like, before that, yeah. I guess it's his decision. I guess all the doctors that are there are just like, whatever. Yeah. You know, he's 83 years old. Like, what good is it going to do? He's going to die soon anyways. So I guess they just made that decision for him. That And he really didn't have anybody. I guess there was people that were trying to marry Manson at the end of his life. Yeah, I think it was back in, like, 2014. Yeah, and I guess, like, he, she would, like, bring him snacks into the prison. And she broke up with him. No, oh, he broke up with her. Oh, because she wanted to marry him to take his corpse on tour <laughs> oh, dude. and uh, make money off of him. And I guess when he caught wind of it, you know, take he like kind of, yeah. Like a stuffed animal, dude. That's... Yeah. He caught wind of it and he's just like, you know what? I'm pretending like I'm going to marry her, but she keeps bringing me hostess Twinkie. So I'm just going <laughs> to keep, keep, you know, dragging her off for the ride. But, um, 
yeah, I guess eventually the Kern County Superior Court um, determined that, you know, they found like one of his close or his, um, his next of kin, which was his grandson. And um, the grandson was actually the son of Charles Manson Jr. And this is something I learned just like right before like you guys came over. But I guess Charles Manson Jr. like dealing with like all the craziness and the circus of like his father. I guess when he turned 37, he committed suicide. So. Dang. Yeah. So poor guy just just born to shit genetics. <laughs> yeah, I or, mean, can you imagine like, that though? Like, I, I mean, like, how would you feel like if you like if you were like the son of like Ted Bundy yeah, or fucking Grandpa's Hitler or something? Yeah, yeah, like like you can only imagine like like that burden because I know he changed his name. I guess later on. It was like something else. It was like Jay something or another. Have you guys seen that interview with the the daughter of the uh, BTK killer? Mm-mm. No. I guess it's like I guess she was just like chilling at home one day, and then like the FBI rolled up and asked her like like what she knew like about her dad, and he's like, "Oh, my dad is a pastor," and then like all of a sudden they're like, "No, your dad's a BTK killer." Like, how much do you know about? Did you already know about this? And like her whole life changed. Oh wow. After that. I mean, I can see how it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I mean, that's got to fuck with someone hard. Yeah. But obviously it fucked with Charles Manson Jr. Like, incredibly for him to commit suicide. But I'm sure he had other demons. I mean, I don't think that... I mean, I'm sure it was one factor, but I don't know if it's like... And that whole family kind of seemed a little off, too. Like, when you talk about, like, the mom, the grandma, and whatnot. Yeah. And um, I'm sorry to keep talking, but... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was watching my girlfriend she had on just randomly, and it just came on. Um, I guess it's like ghost collections or something like that. It was some show on Hulu. My girlfriend was watching and, um, I guess they take artifacts to, I guess, Zach Baggins, I I guess that paranormal guy. And like, it's like haunted mirrors from like Bella Lugosi. Oh, I've seen that show. Yeah. Yeah. It it was like the worst show ever, but she was watching it. So I, that means I had to watch it. And, um, I guess this guy had Charles Manson's TV. And I guess handwritten letters um, oh, from God. Charles Manson. I kind of believe in that kind of stuff where like uh, things just give you the heebie-jeebies. Mm-hmm. Like I go to estate sales sometimes yeah. and some houses you walk into, like it's fine. And then you later find out that like the person just moved and they have like a normal life or whatever. And some houses you go into, it's like there's some, some weird Dark shit. shit. Where, yeah, it's like I don't want to be at this place anymore. So I don't know. I kind of believe and I guess like the TV was haunted and bad shit would happen or whatever. But I guess like the grandson, the one that actually uh, took possession of Charles Manson's body, um, he actually took the TV. Um, Zach was like, "Well, I don't want it," because I guess the T was storing the TV. Like after the show was over, there was a part two to it. Oh, do eBay? Yeah, and I guess he was storing the TV in the basement, and I guess like the basement flooded or some shit like oh, that. No, he should have sold it. Yeah, but I guess he gave it to the grandson of Charles Manson or whatever, and like. That my whole point is like that whole family seems a little touched because he goes, I want to make you know, I want to exercise the demon out of this uh, television, so I want to get baptized on national TV. And I guess he wore like a sweater vest that like Manson like gave him like when he was a kid or whatever, and like they take him out to like the Kern River and baptize him, <laughs> and like he like casts out demons out of the TV or whatever. It, it was like an awkward watch. Like I was just like, oh man, that whole family's kind of crazy. I like that term, touched. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard that before. It's it's delicate though because you don't want to say like, oh, you carded, yeah, yeah, yeah. but like you could tell like the whole family's a little touched. But 
Anyways, Art, you're quiet over there. I've talked way too much. Do you want to bring this show Take up? Take your mama, you boo too. Shout out Elizabeth Jackman, Elizabeth Warren. Thank you for listening. You've made it through. Hour three. Hour three of the Art and Jacob. We're just getting started here, people. Um, don't do LSD. Don't do LSD. Uh, shout out Fightback CBD. Type in America for 10% off. And that's it. Let's take it home. Yeah. Shout out Podbelly Network. Go to podbelly.com for other podcasts that do this probably way better than I do. So with that said, everybody, thank you, Maddie, for coming by. Thanks, guys. <laughs> that was fun. I'll let you talk more next time. I'm sorry. No, no. That was great. <laughs> that's it, everybody. Have a good night. Right. Later. And when I stand on the mountain and I say, do it, it gets done. If it don't get done, then I'll move on it. And that's the last thing in the world you want me to do. Don't invoke me. Do it. Get it done. How do we do it? I don't know. I don't want to be involved in it. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. In Japan, they call it ninja. I don't get involved in violence. I'm not a violent human being.